If I ever see the comments on like that KSL news piece or something, you know, the local news in Utah on something like a wildlife thing, just the comments are, oh, or like the, uh, our social media, Facebook posts, you read Instagram them? posts. I don't know. Maybe if I'm feeling a little too good about myself, <laughs> they're, they're, they're you need to be knocked down a peg. They're, they're brutal. Yeah. They'll help keep you humble, man. I read them like, oh, these are so brutal. And but the funny thing is, I've run into some of those folks in real life. Oh yeah, and talk for ten minutes. And like, yeah, maybe we don't see everything exactly the same, but at the end of the 10 minutes, it's like, oh, he's a good dude. Yeah. We're all right. Like, okay, yeah, maybe I don't agree, but I, I guess I can kind of understand. It's yeah. totally different. Completely different. It is different. two completely different worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Online and yeah. social are two completely different worlds. And online, the guy is like just a total jerk, just brutal, <laughs> so harsh. And then yeah. you talk to him for five minutes in real life, and it's like, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. The thing I don't get is the, uh, like the current state where everybody feels like they have to offer an opinion on absolutely everything. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, I tell my oldest kid all the time, I'm like, you know, you don't, you don't have to engage on every, absolutely everything. Like, you can rein it in. You just, <laughs> I mean, and he's not too bad about it, yeah. but I'm just like trying to teach him like, listen, just because you have an opinion doesn't need to put it out there all good, the time. That's a good father right there. <laughs> just yeah. teaching him how to like manage the real world. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what's funny though? Social media is so engaging. I've caught myself a couple of times be like, oh, I'm no way, man. Oh, I'm getting yeah. in there. Goonies is way better than Back to the Future. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then yeah. I'm like halfway it through typing it, and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares what I think, man? Why would I even? So my, wait, my four-year-old daughter that's like a rage monster, right? She's just got all kinds of rage, and she hits her older sisters. Uh-oh. And since we're crappy parents, we've now told my eight-year-old daughter, I'm like, if she hits you, Hit her hit back. back. That's a good like, parent. She's got to learn that if she's going to throw a punch, she's going to get another one thrown back. You guys at her. need some boxing gloves and just let them That's go. That's a out good parent. That's what we did when yeah. I was a kid. Physics 101, man. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, got a, I got a four-year-old boy, and his, his cousin, my niece, is a seven-year-old girl, and we, we do the same thing. Like, you guys figure it out. If you hit each other, you're going to get hit <laughs> back. Like, I don't know back. what to tell you. Yep, that's life. <laughs> that's the way it works. Like, welcome to, you know, repercussions like we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll uh, jump in and just introduce you guys real quick. We're fortunate to have you. We, you know, we appreciate that it worked out that we're here in Salt Lake at the Hunt Expo and that you guys were able to stop in and visit with us. So I got Dax Mangus. Mangus? Yes, sir. Not, yeah. Mang not Mangus, right? Why do I want to say Mangus? Mangus. Mangus. Like an Angus bull, but with an M, M in front of it. That's, <laughs> Ooh, that's I like that. Name. Mangus. And Mike, I'll never Mike forget Wardle. it now. Yep. So uh, you guys are, why don't you go ahead and just like give us a, a real quick synopsis of what it is that you guys do and... Why we had you on today. Okay, Why do you yeah. think we did? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm Dax Mangus. I'm the big game program coordinator for State of Utah. I've worked for Utah Division of Wildlife for about the last 16, 16 I was gonna or say, so years. Somebody asked me yesterday, and I said, yeah. it's probably got to be 16, yeah. 17 years. Tra Traylon and I were at school together at Utah State back in the day. Yeah, Dax was the smart kid in class. <laughs> you were the, <laughs> the one you I was the, the guy you yeah, cheated I was, <laughs> Yeah, Dax was the guy that like held the, you know, held the grade, like yeah. the high grade in class, and we were all kind of just below. <laughs> so you were the one everybody hated. You were the one that ruined uh, the curve I liked on the him. test. He was, he, was, he, was, uh, he was generous with his help, you know. Oh, if you needed like some that. help. like with There's nothing worse in college Dr. than the guy. Dr. Conover. Oh, yeah. Nothing yeah. worse in college than the guy who would sway the curve. Because yeah. I'm yeah. a C student, right? Yeah. I've always been. I was the healthy one. I was the one that swayed it lower. Yeah, right. I was the one everybody liked. So it's like any time a guy is like, well, he scored 98, so it's only swayed two points. I'm like, mother, are you kidding me? <laughs> two points? Yeah, but Dax and I went to Utah State together. Yeah. That's, I think then, that's where we first met, right? Yep. Yeah, and then I, I went on just uh, work for the Division of Wildlife. I did a... I did a master study looking at elk on Deseret Ranch, a big ranch in northern Utah, and 
and uh, went to work for the division. I worked in the northeastern region for the last 15 years. I've been out there. I managed the Book Cliffs unit, and then I was the regional manager out there, and and now uh, big game coordinator. And just this last fall, um, I've been doing that big game coordinator job not quite a year now. But this last fall, we redid our statewide elk management plan. Yeah. And I'm guessing that's some, yeah. uh, you know, and there, there's some some big changes and some stuff that folks maybe would be want. ready to be grilled on that. Awesome. Well, yeah. sure. Let's do it. I, I what, was your, what was your master's thesis on? It was on, uh, it was on Deseret Ranch, and they fed a bunch of elk there in the winter, and we were trying to find ways to get those elk to disperse through habitat improvement, habitat improvement and uh, strategic hunting to get those elk to winter out on their own to reduce disease risks associated with feeding, but also to try to keep them out of trouble so they weren't all going into Evanston or, or heading into haystacks mm-hmm. and stuff. So gotcha. it, was a, it was a super cool project. I, I shopped around a lot to find something. I wanted to do something specific to big game. There were a lot of sage-grouse research projects yeah. at that time, and I was like, eh, yeah. I got to do something. <laughs> if I'm going to do, if I'm going to go to this much school, it's got to be something I really care about. So Yeah. yeah. I remember, do you remember telling me, at one point you were out there and you were watching a bull like mid it was probably mid March and he picked his head up and you I'd asked you if you'd ever seen a bull shed. Yeah. And he said that bull like picked his head up and he kinda turned as he turned his head, the one just didn't rotate it and popped off. I still have that set. Do you do you really? It. Yeah. It's I tell not, that story all the time. It wasn't like a giant bull or anything, but it's the first bull I ever watched. He dropped yeah, the one I've, side. I've and never he, seen then it. Then he kinda started trotting after he dropped the one side and the other side fell off and it's yeah. like a three hundred bull and yeah. I still have that set. I saved it. That's cool. Yeah, it's I've cool never to see, though. I've it's never awesome seen I've never actually yeah. seen one pop off. I've seen a deer shake his horns off. I've seen a deer pop jumping a fence, but I've never seen a bull. Yeah, that's funny. But I tell that story all the time. I'm like, oh, I know this guy that watched a bull yeah. shed, and because people ask, like, how does it work? You know, mm-hmm. do they shake them off? Do they, you know, pop off, fling off? And I was like, I don't know. This guy was telling me that the bull just picked his head up and kind of rotated it, and it just he, fell he, off. He turned his head, and the one antler just stayed. Yeah, and then it fell. That's what I remember you he, telling then me. Then he kind of kicked a little bit and jumped a little bit, and the other side fell off. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Why? Uh, why? I mean, have you always been interested in big game? I mean, mo- mostly big game. Yeah, so I grew up, my dad loves shooting and guns. He's more of like a gun guy, reloader. And and so we hunted, but I think for my dad, like the funnest part of the hunt for him was deciding which rifle am I going to use? What load am I going to work mm-hmm. up? And we we were kind of like the classic, probably the classic like Utah deer hunters. <laughs> we'd drive around and we'd shoot like a two-point. Yeah. But I loved it. Yeah. You know, I thought it was awesome and I looked forward to it every year. And uh and then when I, I, you know, moved out and started going to, to school, and uh, I was actually in pre-med. Oh, really? I was going to be a doctor. I was going to be a dentist. And then I, I watched. <laughs> I watched. And look at you two now. This <laughs> yeah. is great. Yeah. I, I watched the. He, he could have done it, though. <laughs> that's, that's the difference here. I, I watched, I think the movie was Patch Adams about some, like, dramatic movie about this doctor that helped all these people. And at the end of the movie, I was like, that's not my motivation. I'm like, why do I want to? be a doctor. I'm like, I want to be a doctor so I can afford to like go hunting, go hunting and do cool stuff outdoors. So I switched my major to business. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'll be a businessman. And then I hung out with all these guys in business and all they talked about was money nonstop. And I was like, man, money's cool for, but like for me, I, I don't really love the money itself. I just love what it lets me do. Yeah. And then I was, I, one day I changed my major to, uh, to wildlife. And I told my dad, my dad has like a, a master's degree in economics and he was a stockbroker and owns a business and stuff. And I told him I was going to be a government employee in wildlife. <laughs> and my dad was like, so punk. are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm going to have to support this kid the rest of his life. But now my dad's proud of me. You yeah, know, but, of course. But there was a moment there. My dad was like, are you sure that's what you want to do? <laughs> gotcha. do, you, do you know what those guys get paid? <laughs> Which is sad. Honestly, it, like it's sad, right? Like the, 
there are certain, you know, teachers is one, but I don't know. Yeah. We can get into a whole other Every job has its trade-offs. Yeah. And yeah. I, I've been able to do some super, super cool things, been part of stuff that I cared about and that I was passionate about, and that's worth it to me. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm not the richest guy on the block or anything, but, you know, we get by. I have yeah. four kids, and we get by. We've, we haven't starved to death yet. I, pr I probably <laughs> ought to starve a little, you know. So uh, it, you, make, you make it work, uh, you know. That's you awesome. Make it work. Yeah. Mike, what do you uh, – are you you're the biologist, right? Yep. Beaver yeah, district. So I'm, yeah, I'm a district biologist. So I'm Mike Ordell. I I live in Fillmore, and I cover like the Fillmore Pavant, the Beaver, and the Fillmore Oak Creek units. So I uh, I've had a weird career in the agency. When Trail was with the division, I was a seasonal actually at that time working. Yeah, that's pod, right. Remember? Yeah, I remember that. And uh, I started doing depredation work full time and. Started my master's degree then, and then I, I actually went and worked in the Salt Lake office for a few years as a coordinator. Do you have to have a master's to be in your guys' line of work? Do you have to? For the biologist, biologist positions, positions, wildlife yeah. biologist positions. I, I worked in somehow. Yeah. I, I didn't have a master's degree, but then I had... That would have kicked me out immediately. I think I had, ever. what, 10 years of seasonal work with the Forest Service, and then uh, I, I don't know. There's, I just got lucky. There's yeah. some paths into it, but nowadays I think it's been a while since we yeah. had someone who doesn't yeah. have one or isn't enrolled in and like working on a master's. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I know the expectation is that you pretty much have to have a master's. Yeah. I, I got lucky because I didn't have one at first, um, but the state has a, a program that'll help fund your education and put you through That's nice. your master's. So yeah. I've been pretty lucky that way. What Otherwise, did you do your master's I've, on? I've so I'm writing my thesis right now okay. and I'm looking at factors that influence success rates for limited entry elk hunters. Oh, so that's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. I want to dive into that. Yeah, yeah. So, how how much time do you spend on your thesis right now? Too much. Like how much? Or honestly, much. if like people getting their masters, or whatever. How, right I've now, never done it. Obviously. Right now, I'm I've just I'm getting close to finishing up with like the statistical analysis part, and I mean I'm probably spending at least half a day a week just trying to work through program R and st stats, and and yeah. then starting to write. So, well, Mike, he's a district biologist, but he has an interest and he's and he's good at it. And so we keep Mike involved in a lot of statewide level mm -hmm. projects too. We probably don't give him enough time to finish his <laughs> finish his you yeah. know everything he's got on his plate. But you know, Mike sat on our elk committee when we redid the statewide elk plan. Most of the committee are you know other partners and constituents of different interests, but, but we have one division rep on the committee, and Mike was our division rep on the committee, and. He seems to kind of get put on a lot of our committees because he's a good, well-rounded guy. He's a sportsman. He loves to hunt, but he also understands the biology and that side of it, and and he understands like what sportsmen want to see. But he also he ran our depredation program where we deal with landowner conflicts, and that's a real intense and very real pressure that I think a, a lot oh, of sportsmen yeah. don't fully grasp and understand. Like we have a lot of obligations in state law to to deal with depredation issues, and sometimes sportsmen see that and get really upset about it and, and it's it's complex but mike has a really good like well-rounded point of view because he's been involved on in a lot of different sides i think your dad's a farmer yeah he loves to hunt and then he's got the the education and background so we use mike a lot and he manages the beaver and the oak creek and yeah. some of these like high profile units too so. you have some of the best i mean you probably have the best district right i mean our, i think so yeah, yeah. i mean no come beaver's on. terrible don't don't, <laughs> right. don't it's really don't bad the beaver the provide sucks too. yeah i, I mean worry. don't don't do it you got giant bucks bulls the whole the well, whole no, sheep no <laughs> well, and i'm like i'm totally biased because i grew up in fillmore right mm -hmm. so i grew up at the foot of the pavant and like during the heyday of the pavant that's when i was a teenager and 
so I have like these totally unrealistic expectations of what elk units should look like, and I've had yeah. to kind of readjust. You get those. them all back to that. Can't you guys do that? Yeah, yeah let's get jump back into to that. that. Let's talk. I mean, it's part of the reason we we're going to have you yeah. on is to talk about the ten-year elk plan. So Utah just just started, right? Just in, how, how is it signed? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, it got approved in December, early December. So the process, you know, we put this big committee together. I think we we met for for months. Who, um, who who's the committee composed of? So we have um, we had folks from Department of Ag, the Farm Bureau. We had private landowners. We had some folks from kind of the the commercial end of things. We had some uh, guide and outfitter um, folks that ran CWMU's cooperative wildlife mm-hmm. management units. So um, are these people appointed? Like they're chosen? They're so, yeah, yeah. We formed, Who chose them? Who chose them? So the division. Some of it. Uh, we had representatives from federal land management agencies like BLM for service. Mm-hmm. Some of them are folks that we specifically uh, reached out to folks who'd served on like our regional advisory councils. And then some of them, we reached out to an organization or agency, and then they told us who the representative was going to be. Mm-hmm. Like we had um, Rocky mountain elk foundation, Utah archery association, sportsman for fish and wildlife. So we got, we had a, we had a County commissioner on there. So we've got, you know, elected officials, Folks that are really focused on elk. We have landowners and land interests, and um, yeah, like I said, BLM Forest Service. So it's a it's a big group, and we try to get you know all the different angles, all the different interests together. Um, yeah, so some of the folks we specifically uh, reached out to and invited to be on it, and then some of them were folks that got appointed by the organization that they represented. That must be like trying to put a pack of cats in a bathtub. <laughs> get, get all yeah. of them together and then try to get everybody like on the same page i mean that sounds like it yeah, yeah yeah i mean that sounds like an insurmountable task honestly we, i mean we had a few meetings that went for like four or five hours and at the end of the meeting i left and thought wow we just accomplished nothing yeah we spent, yeah we just spent four or five hours and we i don't think we <laughs> but 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 we did because i think a lot of folks had something they needed to get off their chest mm-hmm. and so we a few of the meetings I don't know if we made a ton of progress on paper, but people got yeah. got their piece. They were able to say their piece, and so then, then we could move on and start there, dialing into stuff. There's like an education factor, too, that has to take place in those first couple of meetings. I mean, we spent a lot of time hearing from research, you know, researchers out of BYU, us presenting data, and like trying our, to get everybody licensing. at the same level of education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our licensing folks came and talked a lot about, yeah, just... We, we spent a few meetings just trying to get everyone up to speed on all the research we've done recently, looking at harvest data, draw odds, all, all kinds of Go, stuff. Going into that process, who is the division that kind of keys up the agenda as far as like what problems you're trying to solve for? And you kind of outline it for the group, and then as a group collectively, you're like working towards solutions to those problems. Is that kind of the, the take? So we, yes, but also in our first couple meetings, we kind of, we said, What's working well with elk management in Utah? What's not working well with elk management in Utah? Mm-hmm. In the division, we had a couple things on that list, but the, it was also open to everyone else in the room for, you know, if you got things that you feel like are working great that we, we got to double down on, or you got things that aren't working that we need to try to tweak, There's elk what are those things? In the division, we had some <laughs> things on both of those lists, but also the other folks from the committee did too. So, gotcha. so and I, I was the chair of the committee, so I, you know, and, and we had a facilitator there as well. And so, you know, I would set the agenda, but we really tried to incorporate, you know, what folks that were involved wanted to talk about. Yeah. What are some of the issues that people think that, you know, weren't working well? 
like is is that process started to kind of work itself out and you're working through and people are talking what are kind of the the problems or the things that people are bringing up is saying this is something that we need to fix so point creep was probably a huge one the, a big one yeah so opportunity then, right just the yeah. opportunity in general and yeah go ahead mike you had a thought i could uh, see i was it. just thinking like that that dynamic between quality and opportunity right like sometimes those are viewed as mutually exclusive and the committee really took a a standpoint of wanting to have both, right? Because that's what, like, when we survey the public, Dax always says, we ask if they want bigger bucks or more of them, and they're like, we want more bigger bucks. We want, yeah, yes. Yeah. And we, <laughs> want, and we all want tax. Consumer 101, everybody wants better <laughs> stuff for less money. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's, it's the age-old constant. We That'll did never a, change. We yeah. did a public survey. We reached out, and we, and we had a social scientist that helped us write the survey questions and everything. And still, at the end of it all, the answer was people wanted more of everything, everywhere, all the oh. time, and they want to be the only one out there when they're Correct. running. Yeah, <laughs> it was like okay. Yeah. And what's Perfect. funny is, <laughs> sounds realistic. I, we could have guessed that, like yeah. guaranteed, we could have guessed yeah. that. And you guys did all the work to get there. <laughs> we, yeah. we tried to like dial it in and be like, well, what trade-offs are you willing to make? And and so one of the things we kind of finally dialed in on was. Um, if fo folks, there are folks that are ex willing to accept a little more challenge in order to be able to hunt more often. Hmm. And and the committee, they, they kind of came up with this slogan. This wasn't the division or anything. It was the committee. They said they wanted to increase opportunity and maintain quality, which man sounds a little bit like, how do you do how? that? <laughs> and so that's, you know, and so that's why some of the stuff in the elk plan is kind of outside the box. Yeah. And, and I look at it more like I, I made the analogy a couple of times. It's like, we're trying to, it's like you go to a restaurant and we're not, we're not in and out. It's not like there's three things you can choose. You know, you can mm -hmm. get a burger, fries, or shake at in and out We're like the Cheesecake Factory. The menu's like 35 pages long. I love this analogy. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. This is great. And you can, you know, uh -huh. we got everything Must from an time. early rifle hunt on the, on the San Juan or the Boulder or something to an over-the-counter rifle tag on the, in the Uinas. And, uh, you know, and that's from, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum as far as, you know, really high quality we're managing for really old bulls, super high success rates versus, you know, if, if we, we now have an over-the-counter rifle hunt on, mm -hmm. on our any bull units and it's, there, it's after, you know, already the general season archery hunt and then a full week of, of limited any bull hunting. And, uh, you know, if you can kill a bull on that hunt, holy smokes, man. Yeah, you've done yeah. something. It, we know it's going to be super hard and it's not for everyone, mm -hmm. but, and we're trying to kind of fill in the gaps in between there. So, you know, if you're willing to hunt with a bow or a muzzleloader or during not the best dates, you know, maybe you can get a tag without having to wait two or yeah. three decades. So I would assume you said point creep being brought up. Is that, I mean, is that probably the most widely, you know, the biggest complaint that people have across the board is that point creep, they just can't get a permit, not yep. enough opportunity. They just want to hunt they more often. They just want to hunt more often. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know if point creep plays into that, but I think that was probably the biggest complaint it, was people want yeah, to hunt point, more point, often. Point creep just speaks specifically yeah. to opportunity. It, it I mean, used that's to what be, it is, right? yeah. I mean, you and I are probably about the same age, but it used to be that people were, you know, willing to to wait. Like I knew a, a lot of people that are you know got into the game about the same time I did. Yeah. They were willing to wait the fifteen to twenty years to hunt a bull that was three seventy plus. You know what I mean? And like we all kind of accepted it. Do you feel like there's a swing now? People don't want to wait that long. They would just want more opportunity. And it, it's split. But <coughs> it's still split though. But there's fewer people that want to wait that long. I mm -hmm. think, or we're hearing from them more. And yeah. part of it is, I think the guys our age and older that have a lot of points or had a lot of points, 
and then their kids start coming into hunting. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of folks on the committee. Some of the changes we made, if you're sitting on 25 points, some of the changes we made maybe aren't exactly what you'd want. Yeah. You know, a shorter season in that September rifle hunt or, you know, if you mm -hmm. have 25 points right now, you're probably looking at that and being like, oh, dang. But, but what was the game changer for a lot of guys was when they thought like, well, I have kids or grandkids who mm -hmm. are starting to get into hunting. And if you look at where we're at right now, you know, if you start with zero points today, we were looking to draw an early rifle tag on the Monroe was over a hundred years. Yeah. And so that's when they were like, okay, we got to change some stuff. I think that when you put that in perspective for people, when the next generation, the pass on of hunting, that's when people are willing to give up yeah. some, yeah. you know, they're willing to negotiate based on, on that. I know you guys hunt other States and you're familiar with other States draw systems. Um, did you were you at Waf, Wafa the one time in Texas? Did you go to that one? I was. You were there. Workshop. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of talk. I mean, I know that the various states talked a lot about the various draw systems across the board. If you guys, what's your current opinion on Utah's draw system, and as it relates to other states, do you like it? I mean, if it were up to you and you could wave, wave a magic wand, would you do something different? <laughs> you don't want. That Is that a bad yet? question? <laughs> You don't have to answer it. No, no, no they have I'll to answer this one. I want to know. I, um, there's times when I look at Idaho and I'm like, gosh, it would be so great to just have it random, Rent. no bonus points, like not have to worry about this whole point creep idea. But at the same, in the same breath, I kind of like knowing that if I put in long enough, I will someday get that tag as long as I outlive all the other people. <laughs> Which is as long as I stop getting gas stations, yeah. like never guaranteed. Yeah. You know, I mean, for, for you that's the case, but like for a kid, it's yeah. I mean, it's like Dax just said, hundred years. I mean, well, like so this year, I I, I had fifteen out points and I cashed in on an archery tag on the Pavant because I didn't want to wait anymore for a muzzleloader rifle. Mm -hmm. And I think about that now, and I'm like, after my waiting period and putting back in, that might be the only time I hunt yeah. a good unit with limited entry elk under the current status and where we're going was there talk That's about hard. changing the draw system i mean completely um you know the thing is the the draw system is way bigger than just elk oh yeah you know and we, we talked about it it came up a little bit and and i i'm torn on it because i'm like mike like sometimes i see the mm -hmm. benefits of of like if it was just all completely random and, and in Utah, we, we kind of try to split the difference, mm -hmm. you know, where it's like you, if you do keep after it long enough, your chances are going to get better and better and better. But there's also that random half of the tags that go to whoever puts yeah. in. But the reality is just our, pop, our human population is growing like crazy. You know, the number of applicants we get every year goes up. Most years, I think it's about 7% annually increase in number of applicants for, for big game tags. And, uh, is that resident specifically or non-resident? That's both combined, both, yeah. resident and non-resident. And the reality is we can't grow game populations and the opportunity to hunt at a rate of 7% a year. You know, we, we try to find opportunities when we can, but we can't grow our elk herd 7% a year annually. There's just, it's just not realistic. So it's going to get harder and harder to hunt by creating some of these kind of more outside-the-box ideas. Some of the things we did – it gives you more options, but mm -hmm. if you're dead set on like a rifle September rut hunt, you're going to be waiting a long time or you're going to have to just get super lucky. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know if there's a solution to that or a way around that. The thing that interests me, let me move my mic over here because Renzo and I are sharing. We're sharing. <laughs> yeah. Sharing is caring. The thing that interests me is if a guy wants, to, if a state wants to try to reset these systems, how can you ever reset a system by also rewarding those people who have been putting in yeah. their entire life? Like, there's always going to be someone who is 
very, very mad. You couldn't. You'd have to rip the Band-Aid off and just yeah, take yeah, it in shorts. It's, it's a wash. <laughs> like, all those years are wasted, but then that's all that money you've invested yeah, to in the, the state the whole time. To that, to that point, did you guys ever look at, like, a, a, a math or extrapolation model of 100% of the tags are going to go to the highest point holders for the next four years, and then we'll reset? So at least you can get like those people out and maybe service some of those people that have 25 points, been doing it for a long time, but then you have a great reset. Like, have you we, ever? We looked at it. There's so many people with a lot of you points. You never we, hit. Could, we couldn't do couldn't it. Do yeah. that. And we, I think a couple of years back, we even uh, took around through our public process, the, all our public meetings, a proposal to change the splits of the, right now it's 50-50. Mm-hmm. 50% of mm-hmm. the limited entry permits go to the, are drawn from amongst the folks that have the highest number of points. And the other 50%, it's, it's like weighted random. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we, we proposed changing that to give more of the, a higher percentage of the permits to people with the maximum number of points. And it was like soundly rejected through the yeah. public process. Yeah. Yeah. Cause people want the random chance. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, we're kind of in this you're, place. You're we've, we've had some, some pretty intense internal conversations. Like, is this something we could do? Like, could we merge the point systems for deer, for example, mm-hmm. you know, between general season and limited entry and as a hunter, you can see how that could be beneficial in some ways. But then as an agency where, where we serve sportsmen, you know, that's, that's our job. It's number one to manage the resource well, uh, you know, conserve the resource and manage it wisely. And number two, it's to serve the citizens of the state of Utah and folks that want to come here and hunt. And, you know, and, and some of our folks are from like a customer service standpoint. It's like we can't do this to our folks that have invested in the yeah. system for yeah. all these years. And, and so, yeah, we, we've had we've gone through the pros and cons and looked at it pretty hard internally. And did you look at a, a system entirely like Nevada, where so I'm a resident of Nevada, have been my entire life, and having a weighted bonus, a hundred percent weighted bonus. So when we look at the when we look at the data and, and produce our draws and all this stuff, you, you, we find a lot of individuals between four and eight points are drawing a lot of tags. So you have you have really good opportunity. I'm talking sheep tags. I'm talking we're talking elk tags like very high end tags. And obviously it's mathematically that's where most of people the people are. sit is between yeah. 4 and 8. But as somebody with 15 points who I have 15 points for sheep, I drew my elk tag with 12 points. Had a guy in my office draw it with 3. Like I find that very fair as an individual because I know I'm getting closer as I get more points. Like I know I'm getting better chance at the sheep tag with 15 points now. But I also understand that somebody with two points, three points, four points is going to draw. And I think it's a fair trade-off, you know, as an individual. Yeah. No, I, it, it's interesting because, you know, like on one side of Utah, we got Colorado that's essentially straight, straight preference. preference. Yeah. And then on Nevada, it's squared, bonus, bonus points yeah. squared. Yeah. In Utah, we've got, you know, both, half, half, yeah. is, <laughs> half is straight preference and half is a weighted random, but it's not squared. It's just yeah. linear. Yeah. So I don't know. There's a ton of pros and cons. And Idaho to the north of us is totally random. random. Do you think, I, I like know. going back in time, do you think if we all had, uh, you know, the foresight to know what this would turn into? I mean, do you think we all just should have went random? It probably like a new Mexico system where you get totally random and three choices. It, it I, might it might look yeah. different if we went back. But yeah, uh, it's uh, interesting. I just, I'm invested in it enough now. I have yeah. enough points that I I kind of want it to stay as, a, as me individually sure? as a person. I'd kind of like it to stay how it is. Yep. But I but if I had zero points and I was just getting into hunting. I might be like, oh, this is horrible. So, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. We probably yeah. just wouldn't have started the R3 initiative, right? Where we're I, like trying to recruit I, It's hunters. one of those kind of things. I don't know if there's a right answer and a wrong answer. I think there's just yeah different, just, different just ways to approach yeah, it. Yeah, no right or wrong. It's just all different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some yeah. people are going to really like one way. Some people are going to like another way. And, yeah. yeah. 
I always wondered too, like, if there's a way we could get all the states together, all these smartest people around. Like, is there something? Yeah, is there something we could potentially think of that could make it fair? Like, every time you apply and don't draw, you get minus two. So, like, why would you want to shoot for the stars every single time? So you're gonna get minus a couple bonus points until you get reset down to zero, and then everyone's at zero. But it, like, makes your strategy different. We have to think about what you're applying for. Like, is there a way? Remind to make me, it somehow fair to the hmm? people who've been applying for a long time, but also reset the system. Well, that's kind of what that meeting was at the Darren Elk workshop. Like, Trail came, you presented mm-hmm. all the different methods, yep. right? And then we, didn't we have a panel discussion mm-hmm. with a bunch of different state representatives? Yep. And they were all, like, the DAXs of each state, you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. It sounds like this is a job for Elon Musk. Like, we need this yeah. guy to become a hunter, uh, and he'll figure this shit out, guaranteed. <laughs> or some really brilliant AI or something yeah. that Elon programs. Yeah. Yeah. Elon is yeah. AI. Yeah. He's the human form of AI. We need the Tesla of point programs. That's <laughs> uh, yes, we need well, this guy to figure it I out. I mean, you guys are the professionals at looking mm-hmm. at all the different po- you know, point programs mm-hmm. and draw odds and across all the different states and... No. You guys ought to be putting on workshops for all the <laughs> yeah, state uh, fishing game folks and all the different commissions and wildlife boards. Well, it's out a very there. good point. And like you're saying, you're surrounded by all the states are entirely different. Yeah. Our take on it is apply in all the states because yeah. they all have their pros and cons. So, like, the thing that has changed on our side of the table, like from us uh, as hunters who live it, breathe it, you know, try to digest it and have our own strategies and produce, you know, articles and content for other people to build their own strategies is it's never been more apparent than now to hunt as many states as you possibly can. Now, granted, it gets into a financial discussion, which we've had before of Mm -hmm. how do you apply for as many states as you can as financially responsible as you can. But like that, that is the game now is you you have to hunt as a resident and non-resident of multiple states, whatever that is for you, you got to figure it out. You have to take advantage of each, each state's opportunity of their system, right? Which Utah has some, Idaho has some, the random and Nevada has, you got to take advantage of it. That's yeah, what's yeah. changed. And you guys do that a little bit, I know. I know you guys hunted out of state, some yeah. too. Uh, if I want to hunt every year, mm-hmm. and so you got to cast a pretty wide net Exactly. Yeah. nowadays. You know, last year was the first year in, I think, almost 20 years I didn't have a deer tag in Utah. Yeah. Cause I, and I'm willing, I would rather hunt a really tough unit than not hunt. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll and that's what I did last year. I had no points, and I looked, like, what's a unit I can draw with no points? And I put in, and I think... Like out of all the hundreds of people that put in, there was like 17 who didn't draw, and I was one of those 17. <laughs> one of so, but it was sad for me. I was really sad that it was the first year I didn't. And I, and Idaho's changed all the. Uh, yeah. Idaho used to always be my back pocket deer state, and Idaho's changed everything. Their tags yep. sold out on December 1st in a couple hours or whatever. I'm like, man. So I hunted. I hunted elk and pronghorn last year. Yeah. I didn't have a deer tag for the first time in 20 years, and it was sad. Yeah. It's a bummer. It is a bummer. It really is. So that's where, like, cast a wider net, right? Start looking at Colorado, start looking at Wyoming, Nevada, all these other states that are, you know, somewhat close to you. That's what's changed is having to do that now. I didn't draw Colorado either. (laughs) I have max points in Wyoming, and I sat on them. Maybe I need it. See, you could have had a deer tag. I'm going to burn them. i got to get them burned now before they change. I know. I got a a guy who's looking for a party at. (laughs) I got some spots. (laughs) So going back to the elk plan, um, we kind of identified the point creep, you know, people opportunity. What? So this 10-year elk plan, this is this will go into effect and run through 32. Is that right? 2032. Yeah. Is there an easy way to recap exactly what the what is the change? Yeah. Just, so just that's like what, a that's clear, what I was going to get what into. What is the clear change? Yeah, like if there's what, any what, what easy are the way biggest to say changes? That, what is the change? Okay. It, there's kind of a lot, but I'll, I'll boil. I'll try to boil it down. So in Utah, we've got general season elk hunting and limited entry elk hunting. 
But then the general season end of things, we we have spike bull hunts that that typically occur on our units that we manage for limited entry bulls, you know, for big branch antlered bulls. But we allow hunting of yearlings on those units, essentially yearlings with the spike hunt. And then we have any bull units that are general season units where, you know, they can harvest any bull, a spike up to, you know, whatever it may be. Um, those units typically have pretty low success rates. They're hard hunts. Uh, you know, they're, they're an opportunity hunt. They're focused on opportunity. The big change that we made there, um, our general season elk tags, they have a quota, an overall quota. We sell uh, up to 15,000 spike spike tags and then 17,500 any bull tags was what we were selling. Um, and that any bull, the rifle portion of the any bull hunt was a 13-day long hunt. And we split that into two seven-day rifle hunts. So it's, it occurs during about that same time frame, early October. It's now two seven-day rifle hunts. The first hunt has a quota of 15,000 that are available. The second hunt, the second rifle hunt has no quota. So it's unlimited. Hmm. So that's probably the biggest change with general season elk uh-huh. hunting. So, and, and part of it is our archery, our archery hunt is unlimited. There's no quota there either. Um, we wanted to have like just the ultimate opportunity hunt for folks that don't draw anywhere else or they want to be able to plan on, count on that family hunt. And uh, so that's that second any bull rifle hunt. And, and those tags have been selling out just quicker and quicker every year. Um, yeah. Ever since COVID, they sell out. They used to, it used to take, you know, yeah. weeks, even months for those tags to sell out. And then after COVID hit and everyone decided they wanted to be outside, which is great. That's a good good thing that came yeah, from COVID. For sure. But now those tags just sell out in a matter of hours. So so previously, you had 17,500 tags at the same time. Yeah. And now you're cutting it down to 15,000. So that, that'll be in the field. And we added some additional any bull units, too. We added yeah, some five units. That, so you're going to spread yeah, some units. opportunity. You're so, going to spread some pressure. Yeah. The, the hope is to spread some pressure, right? Yeah. And then offer that complete opportunity just get after it style of hunt. Okay. So that first week of that hunt, there's an additional, it's almost 3 million acres of land added in. Okay. But it wasn't like our slam dunk performing limited entry units. It was limited entry units that struggled to perform well as a limited entry unit. So it's not like those units are going to be, you know, off the charts. Can you define perform? Is that harvest success or is that size? Age class? We managed to age class, average age of harvested bulls. And so those units that we had, no matter how many permits we cut, we couldn't Reg, you know, regularly hit those age objectives, uh-huh. or we had really low um, hunter satisfaction and really low success. So those are the units we made any bull, we made those okay. general season, um, some units, some areas. So yeah, that's the big change in that second rifle hunt. I, you know, ever, I've had a few people be like, that hunt sounds horrible. I would never want to do that hunt. And I'm like, it's not for you then. You know, that's yeah. not the right hunt for you. <laughs> yeah. it, it's probably going to be crowded. I would guess success rate might be in the single digits. Yeah. But I would take that tag over not having any tag. I agree. Gotcha. Being out in Nevada, I'd, I'd pick up that tag every yeah. year. I had an opening. Yeah, why yeah. not? Yeah. So, so that's a big change with general season. Mm-hmm. That, that's probably the okay. biggest change there in general what season. What about limited entry? I know the, a big one. I've had many text messages from buddies saying you guys are going to destroy the age class in, in the state. So it sounds like we've lowered age class objectives across the board. Take it, Mike. Tell them about it. Yeah. So I'll let we, you talk to actually, the more controversial. Give, give a quick give a quick rundown on how you have previously managed uh, limited entry units for age yeah, class like and how the, that how that what's process the quick works. Quick change, like what is the quick definition of the change? So we used to manage seven and a half to eight year old. Eight, we had units where the objective was an average age of seven and a half to eight year old bulls in the harvest each year, based on the three year average. Based right? on the three year average. Yep. And then we had units that were six and a half to seven, then five and a half to six, and four and a half to five. 
And average age, we view it as kind of a surrogate for like bowl density, right? Or the number of bowls that are on the landscape. So in theory, as you get up higher in age class, there's more bigger bowls available for hunters. Um, and we had different units within those four categories. So we, the seven and a half to eight year old age class, we actually got rid of that. And we're now managing those units um, for six and a half to seven. And then the ones that were at six and a half to seven, we bumped down a half a year. So they'll be six to six and a half. And then um, the four wait, and five. I just screwed myself up. <laughs> no. So the, the five and a half to six. Five and a half to six. We left alone. We left alone because those units seemed to be working really well. That was like the Manti, mm-hmm. uh, the Fish, Fish Lake, Lake, Wasatch. Like they were units where we were still able to give a lot of opportunity, but still seeing quality animals taken. And then that lower age class, we, we didn't keep got any, rid of it. We got rid of it, right? We had like one unit left and we decided to we turn that. We bumped it up. We, yeah, we bumped so you're going to make those five to six, five to six? Is that right? The lower ones or just? No, all we have is five and a half to six, okay. six to six and a half and six and a half to seven. Okay. Yeah. So just three. Yep. Yeah. Do you think it's going to have an impact on those premier units, Boulder, Pavant, you know, San Juan that have typically been your seven to eight year old bulls? Um, are you gonna? I mean, what what's your take? Do so you think I'll, that trophy potential is gonna tank? Yeah. So I uh, I get a ton of calls about the beaver right yeah. now over this, and so I give you my two cents. My opinion is I think um, people are gonna see an impact on the quality on the beaver, but it's not all about the permit numbers. I think that there's a much bigger there's much bigger issues on the beaver with population demographics. Looking at for within your population, how many bulls do you have? How many cows do you have? How many calves, right? Mm-hmm. On the beaver right now, we have a ton of bulls, very few cows, and so our production is really slow. And so when you look six, seven years into the future, there's not going to be as many six- and seven-year-old bulls, right, simply because production was slow now and those bulls weren't hitting the ground as calves. Gotcha. So I think, I think that, honestly, is going to impact quality more way, than, way more than the change in permit numbers. Mm-hmm. And we should say the the change in age class objective is primarily to be able to increase the number of permits available, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I was just going to that, get into that's that. That's the so goal. You, so you guys are defining how you have changed age class management. Now what it, what is the mechanism to do that, to do so? So, so one of the interesting, interesting things we looked at, uh, there's a couple things. One, we looked at this, uh, a huge study was done over 20 years from you know, like Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, someone from Canada to Mexico in between over 20 years. They took Boone and Crockett scores and then got a, a tooth from the elk and had it late, aged in a lab. And they looked at Boone and Crockett score and correlated it with age of elk. And it's over 5,000 elk over 20 years. These are all like guided hunts on CWMUs, Indian reservations, that type of thing. And the average bull scores about 320. So that like the average human is five foot ten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, human five man eight. in North America. Don't make me don't okay. make me smaller <laughs> than I am. The average human's five eight. The average human is five eight. Okay. I like that. I agree so with you. Yeah. Average, yeah. the average bull elk is three scores like three nineteen. Scores three nineteen and they're there by six and a half, seven years old. They're there. So a bull that scores three seventy, three eighty, four hundred is like a human that's Shaquille O'Neal or something, you know, yeah. someone that's seven foot two or something. You know what I mean? Like a four hundred bull is you just don't see a lot of them. Um, but according to the public, they see 400-inch bulls all the time, right? right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 the, and it also means, you know, if the average bull is 320, it means there's a whole lot of bulls out there that are like 290 yeah. and 300. And, and we see that all the time, guys. 
kill 12 year old bulls 10 12 11 you know that are 310 I, I just pulled a bull out of a fence two weeks ago that was dead and he looking at his teeth he's like 13 or 14 years old super old i measured his antlers he was 285 and and so what mike said is really important that the managers for the average age is really it's really a measure of how many bulls are available on the landscape more so than the quality of the bulls more so than the correlation to the score yeah, yeah. and so by by lowering the age objective We'll, we'll be on a stable unit by lowering the age objective one year, you can increase permits 50% and, and hit the new age wow. objective. And that's a, that's a legit math model. Like, yeah. you know that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I sat down with our, our, <laughs> our, the smartest math guy in the division with Kent Hershey and, <laughs> oh, and, <yeah>. uh, <laughs> and was like, Kent, like, let's, let's work through that. Yeah. No, the, the, and so, and we're not going to do that overnight. We're going to not going to recommend an increase in permits, you know, 50% overnight. And we made some other tweaks too to some of the season dates and the weapon splits that'll yeah, also affect. Yeah, let's but, talk about that yeah. too. But one, but one of the things we're looking at is units like the Manti, the Wasatch, the Fist Lake. There's still good bulls that come off those units. Mm -hmm. I would so happily take any of those tags and so and what, be what pumped about them. Like honestly, trying, uh, yeah, yeah. I hunted the Manti this year. We're good. shifting our management a little bit more towards that that yeah. type of a unit. And uh, and as a as a hunter who's chasing these tags, I would be ultra happy with that like i you know like of course everybody wants to go find the 400 on beaver and pavant like it is now but yeah. i would gladly take more opportunity like fish lake and manti yeah. gladly as a hunter you know yeah it's but, interesting it's a value it's a value judgment and everybody's is a little bit different i mean yeah because i know there's guys that you know unless it's a 360 or 380 plus yeah, they're, bull, they're just not even interested at all yeah the thing is though there's guys that kill 360 380 400 inch bulls on the Wasatch or on the Manti mm -hmm. every yeah. year. I mean, it happens. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And so, and you're, there's a shack in every unit. Your likelihood of <laughs> your likelihood of finding those Shaquille O'Neal bulls yeah. or whatever is higher when you have more more animals. You know what I mean? You're, yeah. Your likelihood of finding a a seven foot tall human in the Greater Salt Lake area is probably a lot higher than if you're in rural Utah. Yeah. But there's a Sean Bradley every once in a while that pops up in rural Utah. <laughs> and Emory, I love this analogy. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> no, it is, it is interesting. Like when you talk about animal genetics, it's the same as humans, right? Like yeah. there legitimately is a shack in every unit. It's like it's just the outlier. You know? Dax, just, what, do you, what do you know about uh, genetics and animals and producing trophy antlers? And as far as like genes, where does that come from? Do you know, have you, I know that there's been some talk and some studies recently. Have you kind of followed any I, of that? I'm not an expert on genetics. I know the folks that have whitetail ranches or elk farms, they're able, when you can control what's happening and you know the history of the, both the bulls and the cows, you know, the males and the females, yeah. they can do some pretty incredible things. You know, they're, and nutrition's a huge part of it too, though. Do you know if this is true? Because this is what I've heard, that genetics are, are like the vast majority is based off the female, not the male. That was... That's that's what that I true. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm. So in that the paper that I talk about that mm -hmm. has all this study on antler antler size for bulls, it has it talks about it for deer too, um, and uh, but a lot of what they talk about is maternal conditions. So the the condition yeah. of mom would like fat moms, big healthy fat moms, throw <laughs> offspring that have big racks. Really? Yeah. So that's a direct correlation. Yep. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. accounts for oh, I can't remember the percentage of. Brock or Randy would kick me for not remembering, but and I think that goes percentage. in perpetuity, right? Like yeah. that's it goes generationally. Yeah. Like yeah. that that animal's uh, so like a fawn, right? That yeah. comes from a, a female fawn that comes from a healthy doe. She's more likely to pass that on. It goes it, it goes on and on, right? Like this yeah. bleeds downhill pretty mm -hmm. quickly. Is my understanding? So it, it's genetics, it's nutrition, and it's maternal condition. Yeah, so the maternal condition, condition. The mom was in, and that and that's 
some newer research, some mm-hmm. stuff that I think not a lot of folks had, were aware of. A yeah. lot of folks think a lot of folks think it's just age, and it's not. And, it's, the and maternal it's not con- even just, just age and condition. Or I mean, age and nutrition, but age, nutrition, and you know, mm-hmm. was your mom big boned? Yeah. So the maternal <laughs> condition is that is that like body fat percentage of that dough, or is yeah. it like bone density? Is it just B- the body overall? fat? Yeah. yeah. We need to get some corn-fed does out there, <laughs> does and gals. Working on it. Yeah. So, so uh, if if you could potentially increase the number of permits for each unit that much, what's the strategy to stratify that? Like, how do you allocate those permits through those, um, you know, the different hunts so that you still retain a decent hunt for people? Like, how do you tackle that? So I, I think the weapon splits is something we need to talk about yeah. with that. So that was... There, we're making changes to how we allocate the permits to the different hunts, right? Before it used to be, uh, I'm going to forget the percentages, Dax. You better it's go through tw- that. 25% archery, 15% muzzleloader, 3% multi-season mm-hmm. where they can hunt all, all the seasons, yeah. and then 57% went to uh, a rifle, any legal rifle weapon. And, and of that, uh, 57%, we were split in most units. It was like a 60-40 split between the early rifle hunt and late rifle hunts. On the units when we had a mid rifle, where we had a mid rifle hunt, I can't remember the splits off the top of my head, but it, they were weighted pretty heavy towards that early rifle hunt in September. Mm-hmm. The new splits are are quite, and and this was interesting because this is social, really, you know. And we looked at it, eighty percent <laughs> of the applicants apply for rifle permits, but we kept the overall splits the same. So twenty five percent archery, fifteen percent muzzleloader. 3% multi-season, 57%, uh, you know, were for any legal weapon. But we split them out. So of the overall numbers, it's going to be 25% archery, 15% muzzleloader, 10% early rifle. Hmm. And it's a shorter hunt. It's only five days in September. So that rifle rut hunt is only five days, and it's only 10% of the permits. Then 30% of the permits are going to go to the mid-season, which is early October. So it's maybe tail end of the rut, kind of po- getting into post-rut. And it's on top of spike hunters, mm-hmm. so there'll be other folks in the field with you. And then 17% to that late hunt. Um, we so all, we're, st- we're still doing a, a, a late rifle hunt? Yes. Mm-hmm. How, yeah. Do you see that going on? Because I know there's been a bunch of talk, I mean, specifically for units where I'm from, the Dutton, some of those units that seem to be more susceptible to, like, late season, you know, harvest. Essentially, like the Dutton, a lot of people would take the late tag over some of the early tags just because it's so open and glassable. I mean, is there talk about changes to those hunts? Are we just, are we, we sticking are with... Are they staying the same on those? Are they still that late? Are we sticking yeah. with late rifle hunts then? I mean, as a, as a district biologist, you have the leeway to change those percentages. Some, you know, mm-hmm. so like on the Dutton... The biologist there can make a recommendation to push more of those permits into the midseason, but I think they'll, I think they'll be reduced with the new splits. Yeah. It's going to cut early and late rifle tags like almost in half from what we currently give, and it's going to push most of the rifle to that middle hunt, to that middle, middle rifle hunt, hunt. Which, which we know it will be harder. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was part of the that trade off of challenge and opportunity, and folks were willing to accept more challenge if they got to hunt more often. And so that was part of it. And we, we had some huge philosophical discussions and some huge arguments on this committee yeah. about whether or not you should even hunt elk with a rifle in September. We you do more rifle rut hunting. <laughs> I, mean, it, I mean, I think for a lot of folks, that's like the holy grail of elk yeah. hunting, perhaps. You know, I can use a rifle during the peak of the rut. <laughs> yeah. But there's a lot of folks who are like, we do more rifle hunting in Utah than anyone else. This is insane. You should only be hunting elk with a bow in September. And I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer to that, you know, but people felt strongly about it. And what, what we did was a compromise. We reduced the number of 
rifle rut hunt permits in September, and we cut it to a five-day hunt instead of a nine-day hunt. Was that based on, do you think cutting that hunt will impact overall harvest success at all, or are most people harvesting within the first five days of that hunt anyway? They're harvesting. Yeah. They're harvesting. It, it was yeah. like, I think it's 70-something percent harvest within the first five days. Gotcha. And the folks who aren't harvesting, it's probably because they're being selected. Yeah, my, my mm-hmm. gut is it's, it's to the age class thing. You're going to kill that 340 bull on the second day instead of passing them now, looking yeah. for something yeah. else, knowing it, you it knowing will, you had probably, seven more days left. It probably won't reduce harvest very much, mm-hmm. but it'll reduce selectivity. Yeah. yeah. Hunters will probably yeah. be a little less selective. Exactly. Which isn't a bad thing. Yep. The weapon split change is a big deal for folks that are paying attention to draw odds because it's going to change stuff this year. Like if, mm-hmm. if people aren't aware of this and they're expecting to draw an early rifle tag and like the Pavant was at 18 permits last year and is now down to six. And that was another question. Yeah, so will you, will you guys publish? I mean, previously we haven't, right? Permit numbers haven't been approved prior to when the draw deadline was. Is that something that we will have this year in hand? Will we have permit numbers before the application deadline? Have the recommended permit. Recommended, numbers, right? Yeah, and that was something we really wanted to do because mm-hmm. you, you hate to throw. I don't. Know, I think you've been throwing the curveball a few times. Oh, yeah. When you were trying to draw your goat tag, two, two years in a row. You, you so said, when you told the story you, about being one of the seventeen guys, yeah, I was you, one of four two yeah. years in a row. I was the I was the I one guy out of four that didn't vividly draw. remember. Yeah, every year I was like, oh, I'm going on a go hunt this year. You guys put it on your schedule. Book a camera guy. We're going. (laughs) Nope, sorry. Trail sent me a message a couple times that were like, huh, so you changed the permit numbers (laughs) again. And I could read between the lines. Trail was like, what are you doing to me, man? Yeah, I mean, I've been a proponent of that. I just, I think it's, I think we owe the public it. And and we want to do that. So we changed our timeline a little bit and our application timelines later. Mm -hmm. And so, folks, the our proposed permit numbers will be out, and we'll have had our first two public meetings even as well. Okay. So the so they'll be pretty well nailed down. So I think if there's like a a big if something's going to change to the public process, there's a pretty good likelihood you'll know about it after the permit numbers come out and we have the first couple of meetings. Ultimately, the wildlife board's going to you know make the final decision and approve final permit numbers. But you'll have a way better idea of what it's going to look like than than it's been in past years when we, you know, so threw, that's, threw trail some curveballs on trying to draw his goat tag. <laughs> yeah. So that's a hot take. I mean, for our insiders, our members, you're going to want to be aware of that. Like, if you've got a bunch of points and you're looking at trying to draw an early rifle tag, um, you're going to want to look at the proposed permit yeah. numbers because there's a really good chance that they're going to be cut significantly enough enough so that your point level may not get you that permit that you think it might yeah. so it, it's yeah. going to change some things pretty pretty big time especially for the early rifle hunt mm-hmm. it, one of the other nice things we're doing this year is you can change your your hunt choices in your application during the application period in the past in utah you'd had to withdraw your application yeah. and then reapply yeah. pay the extra now, 10 bucks now yeah. is during the period when it's open you can change your choice so if you you know, watch the Northern Region Rack meeting and decide, like, oh man, I think they're going to change permit numbers on the. You could go back in and change it. Gotcha. Not yeah. gouge for the extra ten bucks. Yeah. Yeah. That's I where did. we get our Christmas bonus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know you don't get yeah. a Christmas yeah. bonus. Yeah. My kids have an amazing Christmas because of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Don't might, even I, joke about stuff. I, like I really shouldn't even say that. You got a commit. A, a Anybody who doesn't see the humor in that, I mean, come on. You got a com- what is it? A commemorative. Glass. That's what I'm guessing oh, you yeah, got. Sure I think did. I had a couple of those. Or a few years ago when I worked at the division, we got like uh, memorable like pogs. They were kind of like a challenge pretty cool. coin. Yeah, challenge coin. That's Last what year was. we got a bag of salted caramels. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Got an apron. Yeah, we got an apron that. one year. An apron's yeah. pretty sick. I like that. Solid bonuses. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm getting some ideas for Gohan it's, bonuses. Yeah. I know exactly like, what I'm doing bonus style this year. It's kind of like uh, what Clark in the Christmas vacation when he gets the Jelly yeah. of the Month yeah. club. Oh, yeah. Like we wish, we wish we got a Jelly of the Month club. That would be that would be pretty. Is that not the greatest storm. Christmas movie of all time? Yeah, absolutely. Holy yeah. oh, shit, that's the best. Uh, what about late archery hunts? I saw. I think I saw some late archery hunts in December. Yeah, that'll be across all limited entry units. Across all units. Mm-hmm. I'm well, a fan of that. There's just a couple where we don't have it. There gotcha. are a couple. But it's, and they're like the kind of the weird exceptions. Did you guys look at Arizona, late archery hunts for that? Kind of the so inspiration that, there? That was something we talked about a lot. And, and one of the themes of this committee was like, can we create hunts where it's going to be hard, mm-hmm. but for some folks, me, yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah. like, I'll take that I would, on. I would that love sounds, it. Me too. I'm all in. Those, like those awesome late challenge. Arizona archery hunts are yeah. awesome. I would love another opportunity so, like that, another state opportunity. We're just cracking the door on it. I think w- what we put in the plan, we're going to start with the really low, like five permits on each unit mm-hmm. uh, or up to 1%. So like the Wasatch and Manti will be a little bit more than that, but most units is going to be five permits. So one non-resident, four resident is what we're going to recommend. How about four non-resident and one resident? Wrong. I know, right? But we're, we're looking at them, and then depending on how they go, and those are in addition to all the other permits. These are kind of, we're kind of looking at these separate. Oh, yeah. it's a whole, a whole different pool. Yeah, it's a yeah, new yeah. – okay, gotcha. so then So that's not part of the percentages. Yeah, yeah. And the, it, it's kind of a, Some extra, extra permit. Additional. Yeah, and uh, we'll look at it and see how they go, and, and if they go all right, I think we'll, we'll look at expanding. Them and we try which to units leave, are, which units have them gonna have uh, them this year? almost all of um, the units I think okay. like a couple of the box seller the box seller unit doesn't have it and I think the three corners doesn't have it okay. but almost all of them is that because of interstate agreements is that what we're doing? some of it had to do with the bio I talked with the biologists and they felt like the elk migrated to where they weren't there weren't anything of it. like we're cool with it being a challenging hunt but we don't want to no, set people up to completely to just fail yeah. or something yeah. you know what yeah. I mean like, we don't guarantee success you you get a, a tag that's an opportunity to go hunt yeah. And sometimes it's rough or the weather's weird or, you know what I mean? But we, we never intentionally want to set someone up to have zero opportunity. Yeah. So. What, uh, what's current state of, like, what would you say the current state of elk is in Utah as a whole? I mean, I know it's a big question, generally speaking, but population objectives, where are we at? So they're doing well. They're pretty stable. Um, drought has slowed stuff down a little bit in some of the drier units in the southern part of the state. But we're having a really wet year this year. Mm-hmm. The elk, we capture elk every year and put some collars on, and, and we're doing some elk studies on some units, and the elk are looking to be in really good shape this year. We're having a more severe winter in northern Utah, but elk seem to do pretty well. I think our elk yeah. Are, yeah. are doing well. I so. can tell you anecdotally, I, I spend for the last, last 20, 22 years, spent time in uh, penguin unit, and I can tell you that has bounced back. It's awesome. Some those units, like a unit like the Panguitch, where we've had big fires. Yeah. Fire. Nebo, Wasatch, Manti, Panguitch yeah. Lake, just to name a few that are just coming to yeah. the top of my head. There is there is a sweet spot a few years after a fire. If we have some wet years. We're, we're in it and, because it uh, took a huge. Enjoy it. It would took a huge lull there for a while. Yeah. Like I've spent, like I said, the last 20 plus, I can't remember, it's 22, something like that, years hunting on the Panguitch unit. Every single year I've been up there in September. And it's always been good, but then it took a huge dip, like massive dip, and it was yeah. shitty. Like it was not good. It was more of, I don't know, like what you would even compare it to. But I wouldn't compare it to a limited entry hunt by any means. Well, it's back. It's it's awesome now. Probably just excess beaver bulls. I think so. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The amount of late bulls that got killed, yeah. big, big late bulls that got killed on Penguins this year, 
it was insane. It was we crazy. put collars across Highway 20. Only a handful, so it was a pretty small sample size. But we didn't see a ton of movement across Highway 20, which really? surprised me. When did you put the collars? When? When did you put the collars that on? Was that would have been like 2014. You oh, were, I think so, it was yeah, so you got plenty of data to look yeah, at. That, that yeah, that sweet spot on fires is it's a real thing. Yeah. And we, we are looking at elk movements. We have a big collar study going on in the southern region this year mm-hmm. where because there is a lot of movement between those units, and it's tricky. You know, We do the best we can to set up hunt units to try to match where elk herds are, but elk will throw you a curveball sometimes, and they, they move. And and uh, so we're, we're looking at that, trying to get dialed in and figure it out. But generally our elk population's stable doing well um our our objectives our population objectives for the units um in northern utah we have quite a few units that are a little bit over but most of those units that are like almost all private land and the landowners want more elk um really what did you say <laughs> they, they, in northern utah the landowners like elk a lot of them um you know they have hunting programs on their lands they're generating revenue from from elk they that's, know, they, what I, that's what I was like thinking. It's a, it's a revenue and, driver. And in the southern, central and southern half of the state, we have a lot of public lands with, like, uh, public land livestock grazing. And so there's a lot of interest on every blade of grass out there. And, and who gets it? You know, yeah. does an elk get it? Does a domestic cow get it? And so, um, you know, and then we deal with, in the winter like this, um, a lot of, we have a lot of come down on winter ranges, especially with this deep snow that we have this year. And we've got elk in haystacks or you know, some guys out there trying to feed his, his livestock and the elk are sneaking in and eating the feed. And and we have a lot of good landowners that we work with and they're pretty tolerant, but they do hit a point where they're like, holy smokes, man, you know, yeah. hay's 300 bucks a ton. Yeah, I can't, feed, I can't feed all your elk. Yeah. And so and so we've got to work on that. A lot of our elk population objectives, they're not necessarily a biological carrying capacity. It's more of a social carrying yeah. capacity. And how many elk can we have without having too many conflicts? Is it... With the role of elk, like just the health of elk populations overall, what role do landowners play, do you think? It's pretty significant. Elk spend a lot of time on private land. Even yeah. on units that don't have a lot of private land, they spend a lot of time on private land. Yeah, so we, we deal with it all the time because we're, I mean, our product and what we do is primarily DIY public land. That's what we try to facilitate. That's what we stand for is the opportunity of public land hunting, you know, fair chase public land animals. And there's there's always a, a rift between, like, hating landowners because you can't hunt their land and that's where a lot of the animals are but then also understanding it from a higher level of the role of importance they play in the overall health and i think it's a lost understanding a lot of the time of like exactly what that it almost acts as a preserve right it, like yeah, say sometimes it's a it's a sanctuary yeah too. so i mean so it, it's a necessity <laughs> in, in animal health would you say yeah it's it's important we have you know i, I think the contributions that are made by private landowners are huge they, yeah. they help a lot. And we have programs like that CWMU program. Mm-hmm. We have the Landowner Association program. We have our depredation program where we compensate landowners for loss. We try to recognize that value. And it's a balancing act. And some landowners feel like it's it's adequate and it does well. And some sportsmen feel like it's too much and yeah. that we're, we're well, giving I mean, away the farm. We, and, we can't help but think like it does take opportunity away from us that private landowners get stuff, right? They get tags. They get value. And we don't we don't have opportunities. I think the biggest thing they get is, um, you know, their opinion and and the I should I shouldn't say the sway, but that's what I want to say. The sway that they get into, you know, the into the overall objective of a unit. Yes. So I I was going to ask you, and maybe this will kind of help set it up. But like, how do you feel about the population objectives of your units? Do you feel like it could support more elk? Because let me give you a criticism. 
this is a co- this is a pretty common criticism I get um, of the division. I'll just pass it on because I like this kind of stuff. But you know, we've put all this money into habitat work. I mean, we have the most robust habitat restoration program in the West, hands down. Uh, you we, guys do more than all the other states added together, correct? Oh, this is the stat that I heard. Infinitely more. It, it's huge. Yeah, Utah. The stat doing, that I've heard on the ground level yeah. is you guys, you guys do more habitat than all the other states combined. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd have to double check on, but I, I think it's probably it's pr- we're we're in that. Yeah, it's a whole it's an order of magnitude above what anyone else above is doing. and beyond. So I mean, how what would you say to that criticism that we've put all this money, all this effort into habitat, and yet our 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 objectives have kind of remained the same? Do you think we could have more elk? And if we if we could, and if we could, and we aren't growing those elk herds, why? I'll talk on a bigger level and then maybe let Mike talk on on a smaller scale because I know he's he's actually wrestling with that same question right now on the beaver, but it and it, it is unit specific. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that's that's probably a fair criticism from some sportsmen to say, you know, you guys have treated millions and millions of acres, you've spent millions, you know, tens of millions of dollars, and our our overall statewide elk population objective hasn't changed a whole lot. That that might be a fair criticism looking at it from that level. Um, and I think some of these programs that maybe sometimes sportsmen are like, well, this is not fair if landowners get this and this and this, but honestly, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. If we can keep landowners in a place where they're comfortable and they're content, we have better luck of being able to raise population objectives. A few years back on the Wasatch unit, we were way above objective. And so we were harvesting cows like like crazy to try to get to objective, and our sportsmen were hating it because we were pushing crowded. a lot of it. It was crowded. Success rates went down. We were pushing, pushing a lot onto of private. onto private or into some deep, dark hole where they couldn't get to. And uh, and we, we had an elk committee and landowners were kind of like, if you'll give us some additional tools to deal with when we exceed that tolerance on our lands, we'll let you have more elk. So we implemented those tools. That's when we created the private lands cow tags. Mm. And then after that, they let us raise the elk objective by 3,000 elk on the Wasatch. And so, you know, it's a trade-off. And sometimes it can even feel counterintuitive to a hunter. It's like, why are we giving stuff to landowners? But the end result was we have 3,000 more elk. And we've shown that by using those private lands tags, we've actually shifted the distribution and put more elk onto public lands. Mm -hmm. That information is lost in translation, in my opinion. Like that, because again, like as us, we feel like it's taken away opportunity from us that landowners get to sway and control and have their own opportunity. But if that's what comes from it, I don't, I don't think a lot of people. Yeah, it's a net benefit. Yeah, I, I don't. You know, it's kind of lost in translation the benefit that comes out of it. And and that's a success story. And there are some units where it's the opposite. It, it's maybe not going yeah. that well, but. You know, Mike, you're you're faced at, with it. You're looking at it right now. You know, what is, what's your thought process? Yeah, Mike, you? we need more elk, bud. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I've literally had days where, like, within the same 45 minutes, I would get a call from a local sportsman that's like, why the crap are you shooting cows? Why why do we have these cow hunts? There's no elk left was on it, the unit. Was it Reggie Swenson? He's, he's yeah, I've had those calls for Reggie. <laughs> <laughs> They're usually text messages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then with, like, literally within 10 minutes, I'll get a call from, an ag producer who's like, hey, what the hell? Like, your elk are eating my haystack. Hay's 300 bucks a ton. I'm going to go out of business. Like, I need help. And you have way too many elk. And, and so it, it's a fascinating dynamic to sit in the middle of, right? And, but I personally, I mean, within my units, I think there's, there's room for growth. You look at the beaver. We've had the Twitchell fire. We've had yeah. a ton of habitat work. 
Um, I think there's definitely more room for elk. We're in a much better situation than we were seven years ago with like private land depredation. Um, the honestly, the hard part as the district biologist is is getting the support that I need to make those recommendations. I mean, sometimes there's when, a handful. When you say that, what do you mean? I mean like rack meetings. So like when you show up at a rack meeting, is I know this because I'm I'm leading the witness, but the <laughs> the loudest voice in the room is a rancher typically. Would you say? Uh, so yeah, sometimes. And, and they show up in droves. Is that kind of what you're saying? Are you saying that we need more sportsman support to to rally the troops for increased elk objectives? Yeah, I'm saying if, if sportsmen want that, they got to show up and ask for it. Like it, this is a. Show up sometimes when they need to be showing up for some of these things, or they don't express their opinion on a public comment period and they'll right. complain later, but they never took yeah. an effort to go to a meeting. Well, What's their opinion? I don't blame them. Like rack meetings suck. I get paid to be there, and they're they're brutal sometimes. But, but oh, I think they're high entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tricky thing is, like the, the division, our standpoint on this is, we don't want to go to war. You know what I mean? That's yeah. not what we're looking for. We're sure. looking for, okay, you guys want this, you guys want this. How can we make this work? Mm -hmm. and, and, and sometimes I'm tempted to go to war. Sometimes it's like, no, this guy's wrong. Let's fight him. But I've found, you know, I've been working for the division 16, 17 years now, that long term, that doesn't get you anywhere. You might win a battle, but you don't win a war. And when we win, and I've learned a lot of this actually from sportsmen, like working with, with guys at the sportsmen's organizations. When we were working on that Wasatch issue, Paul Phillips, who runs Strawberry Bay, and Paul's a great guy, he uh, – he was getting chewed out by by a by a producer that was saying, you know, the elk were doing this and doing that, and and Paul asked him, he said, you know, if I could do something to help you right now, what would it be? And the guy said, well, this really isn't because of the elk, but all a bunch of my cattle guards are silted in. Hmm. And Paul had a backhoe, and he had some guys working for him, and he said, tell me which ones. And they went up and they dug out and 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 uh, and fixed his silted in cattle guards. A couple months later, same guy comes back into to the marina. And goes, you know what? I haven't been seeing that many elk up there. You know, maybe we maybe we ought to have a few more. Hmm. You know, and the elk didn't cause his cattle guard to get silted in, but you know, by connecting with the guy as a human and figuring out what he was up against, what his challenges were, and seeing like how can we help with those. Like I said, now we have three thousand more elk on the Wasatch, and, yeah. and so it's tempting sometimes to fight it out in the racks. And I've been there and and had someone stand up and say something that wasn't entirely true or that was misrepresented. And, and my first instinct is to correct them and, no, you know, we need to do this and I'm right and, and you're wrong. But the reality is, and what I love to do is get more sportsmen involved like Paul Phillips was and find out, you know, what are your challenges? How can we help you address those challenges? And then yeah. here's my challenge. I want more elk. How can you help me address that? Yeah, not just be a loud and, voice, but help, help, yeah. help. Uh, what does the porter always tells me? Don't just come, come to me with a problem. You that's, have to come with me with a solution see, as well. It's the age old saying. If you're an adult, you can't come with a problem. You got to come with a solution as well. Let's yeah. work this out. Like you, if you have a problem and you understand, you know exactly what your problem is, start with just the baseline solution and let's work on it together. Right? Yeah. Like that's, that's what yeah. it takes. But, but we do need sportsman support, but not just to fight. We need sportsman support to, to find solutions. Yeah. yeah. There, yeah. There's an individual landowner on the Beaver who used to be a really hard landowner to deal with. Had a lot of elk on his property, and, and most of his complaint wasn't about what the elk were eating. It was just his fences. He just wanted – he was sick of maintaining his dang fence all winter long mm -hmm. to try and keep his cows in because the elk would break through it. And, and similar deal, a local sportsman um, reached out to him. To the point where he was like, 
hey, can I just have access to your property to go check your fences? And he just started going and maintaining his fence every couple weeks. And it was even, most times it was just a quick drive around and he'd fix a fence. And that landowner is way better to deal with now. Like, hmm. That's a cool story. That's that a good yeah. cool story. I think like the rack meetings are one thing, but like Jax is saying, I think being a part of the solution. Yeah, and living in these little communities, yeah. like the sportsmen know the landowners better than like the division does, right? And they can they they're in a better situation to build those relationships than we are. Sometimes it's hard because we're the big bad government, right? In small southern Utah, where we can be viewed badly, but. The people that are in those communities. You guys aren't the Oregon or Colorado government, so it's, you guys aren't that bad. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think we we can do better too at helping to try to facilitate those types of solutions. I think it's something that yeah. you know we can we can try to work on and, and find answers to. And and sometimes you deal with someone who's just unreasonable, and there's no yeah. no way around it. And that happens on the sportsman end of things, both sides, as much as it does on the you know on a ag producer end of things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but we. We need to communicate, get folks involved, support at rack meetings, and support at finding solutions. That's the kind of thing that can get us more elk, mm-hmm. and we want more elk. If we can do it responsibly, we want more elk. And you know, Mike's looking at it on the beaver, and and I, I hope you can find some solutions and get there. And yeah, because we've done a ton of work. There's there's biologically room for more elk on a lot of these units if we can figure out how to solve some of these you know hot spot problem you know areas where we have problems. Yeah. That was the interesting thing when I worked for the division. I mean, you go into those positions and you think that you're going into an organization that's going to be largely, your job is going to be dictated by science and biology and studies. And, you know, you're going to do all these things for wildlife. But the kind of the, the reality is, is that so much of your guys' job is social, social management. I would say how much, what, what would you say the percentage is? How much of your job is biology and how much of it is social, social management? I, I hate to even admit this, but you're right. I, uh, honestly, so often what we're doing, changing splits for how we hunt bulls or looking at buck to doe ratios and deer, the biological sideboards for that are really wide. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of potentially right answers in between those super wide biological sideboards. And I bet I, I bet I spend 90% of my time working on stuff that's probably social issues and mm-hmm. balancing different, you know, interests and preferences. And uh, I think guys like Mike get to spend more time recovering collars and and working on collecting biological data that we used to inform decisions so i think mike probably gets to spend more time working on actual biology and and i probably spend way more time than i care to admit dealing with you know social issues and trying to Mm -hmm. balance out different different demands i saw within the press release for this new elk plan when it came out uh kind of towards the bottom end of it you were potentially going to reconvene and look at technology and hunting what specifically are we, we looking at? Are we looking at muzzleloader scopes? Just is there other technologies that are you're aware of that we're we're thinking of addressing? Yeah, I've uh, I've been the note taker for that committee actually, um, so I don't play a huge role, but I sit and type in the background, and it's an interesting committee to sit and listen to. Yeah, um, they've talked about a lot of stuff. They've talked about two-way radios. They've talked about hunting clothing. They've talked about Hunting clothing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was like a 10 second. Lo- lo- we're going back to the loincloth. Right. Flannel shirts <laughs> and blue jeans. Yeah. Yeah. You have hey, to wear buffalo clothes yourself. Yeah. No, it was like a 10 second conversation, actually. That, that was, but that yeah, was brought up at one yeah. meeting. Um, so there's a lot of things that they're discussing as far as what the division's going to recommend. I don't know what's going to come out of it, but um, definitely, like, I think you'll see recommendations about restricted weapons that we took through. 
uh, this past rack cycle, like restricted weapon hunts. Um, so your, your hams hunts, is that what you're, you're, you're talking about specifically or you're talking about other? Like for the, yeah, more additional okay. hunts, like a restricted muzzleloader hunt, uh, like restricted ball and patch? illegal weapon. I think they're... Flint? Uh, right, going that far I back? I can't remember. So it's what the definition that they had come up with similar to Idaho's. Mm-hmm. Idaho has like a primitive muzzleloader yep. hunt yep. similar to that. Um, so yeah, I think you'll see some recommendations like that into the future that's going to come from that technology committee. Interesting. Some some of it is stuff that feels more like a no-brainer, like artificial intelligence glassing systems. Yeah. Some of that yeah. kind of stuff. That's night not, vision? Yeah, night, well, night vision's already <laughs> yeah, done. Yeah, legal. You know? so, some of that kind of stuff, it feels like it's easier to draw a line between, you know, when, when you're talking about ethics and fair mm-hmm. chase, you know, that, that again is one where there's not necessarily like, yes, this is right, yes, this is yeah. wrong. It's kind of... The one I've always struggled yeah. with personally is like, the two-way radio thing, which you brought up, like communication is a necessity of day-to-day life. And it's like, I think it belongs in hunting. I have no issue saying that. Like if uh, that's just my personal take, like communication is key in in everything in life. Why not hunting? So everyone comes after radios. Well, there's going to be a day where Elon puts Starlink. Everyone's going to have Wi-Fi. You're going to be able to FaceTime, let alone talk on a radio. You know what I mean? It's kind of a it's a fight you can't win for one because technology is just ever advancing and two communication is like the key to life so i've never understood the fight between the two-way radios and communications for hunting lorenzo you live in nevada yeah okay we can't put you on our committee but <laughs> i'd love to have your voice represented it, it, it's there's a lot of back and forth and that, you know that was one thing folks were talking about just what what you can do on your phone today versus what you could do on your phone even 10 15 yeah. years ago just it's completely yeah. different. I remember hunting Colorado back in the early 2000s where, you know, it was up to the hunter to know if you're on private or public land. And if you you shoot something on private, I mean, that's yeah. Colorado's worst violation. You're busted. You're in huge trouble. But the landowners had no obligation yeah. to post their property. It was kind of terrifying. I'm trying to, I got a compass and a paper map or like an old school yeah. Garmin e GPS unit and I'm trying to figure out where I'm at and now, and now you have the go hunt app yeah yeah you pull up whatever <laughs> yeah. yeah whatever mapping app you're using go and hunt. go yeah. hunt that's that's the one okay the explorer and app. uh yeah you pull that up and it's like you know exactly where you are you know exactly yeah. where the the property boundary is it's a game changer and it's it's really nice and but I think yeah, that's a fair game though like the yeah. I mean the states like Colorado not having to the landowner not having to post the land yeah. It, you got to have one or the other. You have yeah. to have technology that oh, allows that's the hunter a major benefit to, to the use state. every inch, centimeter, millimeter, whatever yeah. you want of the land that is usable to them. Yeah. And then also the the landowner, you know, he bought, paid for, pays his taxes, all that. He deserves what he has too. So you, there's got to be a give and take on the technology available yeah. to allow the hunter to do what they do and the landowner to do what they do, right? There's, there has to be the give and take. Yeah. No, but, but all those things, you know, that feels like a no-brainer, right? Like, okay, well, this this protects private property rights. It makes sure hunters don't mm-hmm. make mistakes. Like, this is great. And then you start getting into, like, okay, well, if I look through my binoculars and it will give me a GPS readout, the text to your phone so you know where to go, and, like, well, that would be really helpful too. But then some folks are like, well, but that's too much. Where you draw that line is really hard. Yeah. And, and I don't know if there's right or wrong answers, and there, but there's strong opinions. Yeah. I, think, I, I think it's the, when you get into fair chase, so, like, that's navigation to me. Yeah. I think technolo- technology should be able to do everything for navigation yeah. and logistics, uh, you know, because that's... Safety too. Yeah, it's safety. Yeah. And it's day-to-day. It's just a part of life. You can't win a technology war. That's just a part of life. It's getting better all the time. And navigation, logistics, all these things, directions. This is 
you, you can't beat that. Yeah. When it comes into fair chase, which is like, you know, nighttime with animals. Yeah. Thermal. Night vision, thermal. Pretty yeah. clear to me that, uh, yeah. like, humans can't see at night. They can. Yeah. Pretty fair. Like, that's fair chase. That's yeah. they. That's their getaway, and you have to go find them. Yeah. If you well, sit on them overnight with, a, with heat vision or whatever it is, not that fair anymore. Like, well, you yeah. just, you took one up on them. Yeah. When we took, when night vision went through, there was not a lot of discussion about night vision, but it went through at the same time as some trail camera regulations. And the trail camera regulations, holy smokes, yeah, man. Like, I saw people who are best friends about getting fist fights yeah. with each other. Yeah, I don't understand, the, I don't do understand trail the trail camera one either. So there, there's, there's, uh, there's some strong opinions when it comes to technology regulation. It's a tricky one. Now, the, and, da- uh, the data yeah. that I have seen, and I'm not smart enough to truly understand what it is like you do, but the data that I've seen on you know, trail camera pressure through times of drought and like pushing animals off the office spring. I totally get that. I get that data. But then there's also the backside of that where the amount of, of sportsman led information found through their own trail cameras, right? Like migration patterns, how far deer will travel for water, all the, and sportsmen having that and they paid for it. They put the hard work in and biologists have had the benefit of that. Like, I think trail cameras are, are a good thing. It's just the data to support like the pressure of drought and uh, i mean that's like a that's a tough one but i do think they should be allowed my personal opinion that's what's so hard about all of this like because like you know dax and i we rely on data to make decisions right like that's that's our mantra as an agency Mm -hmm. and with all of this stuff we sit and have these hours long conversations with zero data it's just like well, I think this. And I, well, I think yeah. that. I heard know? a quote once, and I love it. And says, "If we have data, let's use the data. If we, if we're just going to use opinions, let's use mine." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love it. Yeah. Say that at work. I, I love like that, that one. Yeah. That's awesome. Hey, if you don't come with data, we're going to go with opinions and mine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, if we're just going to go with opinions, let's go with mine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but it, this stuff yeah. is tricky and it's hot. And this but, but trail cameras do collect data. Like it's visual data. It's not number data, but like. But like they the, do collect it. The underlying purpose of all these discussions is people, I mean, re, at least in the discussions that we're having, it seems like people assume that if we regulate this technology, we're going to decrease success rates and increase opportunity, right? We're going to make hunting harder for people, and so they're not going to be as successful. So yeah. then we can increase opportunity. Like, that's kind of the whole here, here. philosophy so underneath it. Start eventually limiting people like, oh, if you want to practice with your bow, you can only practice four hours a week because this guy has right. no job. He can practice every day, so he's a <laughs> yeah. much more lethal killer than you'll ever be. Well, this, yeah, life. and this gets into the anecdotal data part, right? It's the visual data, right? It's like what you're seeing. But for me, as a, as a sportsman, DIY hunter, like I, I have a job, a very, a live in my dream job. Again, I'm unbelievably thankful for that because I get to talk in hunting. But I, I go to the office every day, like these guys will attest to. I mean, granted, I get to hunt probably more so than the guy with two weeks paid vacation. But like, I, I mean, my, my responsibility is to go to the office first. Like, that's what I do. How I compete with guides and outfitters was through trail cameras. I couldn't spend the time out there like they could. They are paid to be out there like you are as a biologist. You guys are able to collect, you know, in-person data where I can't. I'm in an office Monday through Friday, right? My, my ability to compete was through trail cameras because I lived a different life than they did. And, hey, every, everyone has their own walk of life. It is what it is. But like, that, that took away my ability to compete. Now they have a massive leg up on me. You because can still they're use paid. them. You just have to pull them in August. 
what's that? <laughs> I said, you can still use them. You just got to pull them before August. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> which is when hunting is. Like, I yeah, can't you're, you're, you're missing some days, especially if you got a late hunt or and something I, like and, that. And now but, they're, they're able to scout and do everything they need to do, and they're there every single day. There's no loss of visual data, and now I'm going in blind. You know, yeah. I'm sure you guys heard changes. that a fair yeah. amount. Yeah, no, we heard. And, and the crazy thing is, I think you make some super good, valid points. And I've heard people make the exact same or the exact opposite argument about the same thing. It, and then uh, and, and they were passionate and felt strong. And yeah, we had multiple public meetings and two different wildlife board meetings before the board ultimately made that decision. That's why we're going to go with my opinion. And, yeah, <laughs> I, I hear you. I, you. You get it. You get yeah. it. And, uh, and that wasn't the division's recommendation. You know, our recommendation. No, a lot of sportsmen yeah. fought. For that, yeah. which was uh, like so counterintuitive it, to me. It, in hunting, it, it reminds me of like the comedian George Carlin had like some bit about drive, driving, and anyone who drives faster than you is a maniac. Yeah. And anyone who drives slower than you is an idiot. Is an idiot. Yeah. You're the only one who's doing it just right. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of hunters are like that. They're like, well, I shoot with my rifle out to 600, and that's responsible. Anyone who shoots farther than that is is a maniac. You know, yeah. and anyone who only has a three by nine and they only shoot out to 300 yards is an idiot. Yeah. It, but I think we we tend to have that. There's that no way question. Look at stuff as sports. That's human nature. Yeah. No question. That's human nature, and that's yeah. why you try to get to data, you know, like to yeah. as a decision maker. So it's, so it's mm -hmm. super hard to make decisions when there's not really data, yeah. and it's really yeah. kind of about yeah. style or preference. Or yeah. Yeah. there are the there are the clear things like the night vision, and uh, but then there's the fringe stuff where yeah. it's all it's radios or yeah. Yeah. yeah trail cameras yeah. yeah. Muzzle side by yeah, muzzle loaders. Was, I, was I wish that's the interesting one in Arizona is you can't you can't use your vehicle to hunt. If you glass something, you hop in your vehicle. Like, closer, you're technically being illegal. Right yeah, there. so like, how do you define that? <laughs> I would oh so much rather look at deer survival or collar elk and yeah. identify migration corridors Same. than navigate some of these social issues. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, that's that's not what I signed up for when I wanted it's to like, be a this biologist. Is why I love, this is why I love Jordan Peterson is because he's he is maniacally focused on having to define something before you can make a rule or law on it. You have to define it. How do you define if you used your truck to pursue an animal? Like if it's nine miles away and there's a highway to get around and there's a huge canyon in between, like what, I, I, what are you supposed to do? Like, mm -hmm. I, it's, it's very hard to define. I mean, granted, it's not your guys' issue. Yeah, every, every state has, has those their quirks. Thing. Yeah. yeah, it's just the way it goes. Can we uh, switch gears just real quick and talk about mule deer? Because I know you're on the mule deer working group. Yeah. Both of you? you both of you? Brady's uh -huh. a huge elk guy, so yeah, he's we were not, just gonna, he won't jump yeah, in here. Brady he might was, get involved at He was falling point. asleep while we were talking about <laughs> elk. Okay. Nothing for me to contribute. Like that, <laughs> you turned into oh. the biggest elk hunter ever last year. That's not true. Yeah. yeah, let's talk deer. Yeah, so... I mean, let's talk deer specifically in Utah, and and maybe just take it from a thirty thousand foot view. Where where are we at with deer? I mean, how are you feeling about Utah and, and our condition for for deer? Yeah. So our, our statewide deer population objective is right around four hundred thousand deer. We're sitting at about three hundred thousand deer. Um, we just got in our data. We track survival December through December. So we just finally finished crunching the numbers, and we grew deer from last December to this. Uh, December 2022. So from December 2021 through December 2022, we grew deer, um, which is good. We're happy to see. We finally, we got some good monsoon rain patterns. We're seeing some positive things with regard to deer. Um, and now this winter, so winter of 22-23, we are seeing a ton of water. Like most of our snowpack are, you know, 150, 200, 200 plus percent of normal. A lot of those storms were kind of warmer storms came up from the Pacific. And so 
the winter ranges melted off in between storms because it was warmer or it rained a little bit and, and melted the snow down. The northern, like extreme northern part of the state, it's it's a little rough. I think we're gonna we're gonna lose some fawns for sure mm-hmm. in, in some parts of northern Utah. Um, Not in the south though, huh? No, I think southern central Utah, southern Utah looks pretty good, pretty positive. Mm-hmm. I yeah, if I if I was looking at getting a deer tag in southern Utah or central Utah next year, yeah, you'd be talk excited. About, talk about uh, opinion only. So I snowmobile a lot down south on, in the Penguin unit as well. I haven't had this good of snowmobiling in a long time. Yeah, there's so a lot of snow. relying on zero data, I can tell you, there's very good snow levels <laughs> in Penguin just because of how good the snowmobiling is this year. How do we kill deer winter range? Like winter range, what's the what are the ideal conditions for just it's the worst? Like I say ideal, but I mean the worst. Like what is it that kills deer? So and and this this is something that through all the research we've been doing and looking at deer, um, a lot of those deer show up dead. When we're in drought and those deer don't put any fat on over the summer, they show up on the winter range dead already. Hmm. Uh, They're just walking uh, Winter dead. survival is super correlated with body fat in the fall. Hmm. So, and that's one of the things we, we spent a lot of years really, really focused on winter range because that's where they actually tip over and die. And some of the things we're realizing is um, if they don't show up, if they show up in great shape, they can survive even on even mediocre, winter. mediocre winter range or a rough winter. But if they show up in crummy shape, even if it's a mild winter, a lot of them will still die. So I'm going to start so, telling people is I'm just trying to survive the winter. So I'm building for so, <laughs> so, so in essence, like a drought, drought, droughts are what's killing deer then, right? Yeah. Like you can have a rough winter that kills some deer. Like, you know, Wyoming's had a few years ago. Yeah. You know, maybe and we're we having do, we, it localized this year. And we do have that. But, but by and large, drought. And drought seems to be harder to bounce back from, yeah. too than a winter kill. You have a winter kill, Interesting. usually you've had a wet year, you're gonna have good spring mm-hmm. green up, you're gonna have, the, and they seem to bounce back quicker. When we have the drought conditions, they don't bounce back as well. I'm not saying winter range doesn't matter or, or that it isn't important, but yeah. I think we're realizing that the summer range perhaps plays a bigger role in winter survival than we had thought in the past. And so yeah. we're trying to do more work. And that's why some of those wildfires can really provide such a huge benefit to the deer. Um, but then once they're there on the winter range, it's going to be probably like snow depth or real crusty snow that just mm-hmm. covers up the vegetation or makes it impossible for them to get around. They have to burn a bazillion calories to get around and try to get something to eat. They're never, they're probably almost never going to gain weight on the winter range in Utah. Yeah, they're just going to make it. <laughs> you know, maybe on like the Pine Valley or some of those real mm-hmm. southern units where they can get like a cheatgrass green up in the winter, they might, they can put some calories put some on. on. You know, but most of the state, they're not going to gain weight in the winter. It's just, can we slow down the rate that they, they lose it? Yeah. So It's an interesting perspective because I think it's one, everybody thinks when you look at deer mortality, everybody talks about winter mortality. But I think it's that's interesting in the fact that if they're not showing up in good condition, which is a product of what they were getting through the summer. Yep. So I think that's an interesting shift in looking at habitat ranges and, and how those upper elevation summer ranges look and the types of work that we put on the ground. Maybe that's equal yeah. or or significantly more important than we've given it credit for. We're, we're trying to focus more on Mo- moving up the hill, doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, further up the hill. It, it's trickier. It sure. feels, it feels yeah. like to get through Forest all service. the environmental regulations <laughs> to do large scale habitat improvement projects on what's in Utah's primarily forest service lands, yeah. it feels like it's it's a little trickier yeah. than it is on doing it on those middle and lower elevation lands. Yeah, I agree. But population, so 300,000 you're saying statewide? Yeah. 
What's your, I mean, buck to doe ratios? I hear a lot of talk about buck to doe ratios, especially my neck, neck of the woods in Cedar City. <laughs> um, are, there, are we doing okay buck to doe ratio wise? I mean, do you, do you get a lot of public pressure? They always want to see more bucks, I assume. Yeah, this is a discussion I'm interested in. Buck yeah. To doe ratios. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah, go ahead, Mike. I think a lot, I mean, everybody always wants higher buck to doe ratios, right? Mm -hmm. But they don't recognize the opportunity loss that comes with that. Yep. Um, Personally, like in, in my district, I think what one thing that a lot of folks don't understand is that your buck to doe ratio, yeah, buck harvest definitely influences that. But another big factor is fawn recruitment in previous years past, right? Like uh, if you don't have fawns coming up in the population every year, like that's going to impact your buck to doe ratio. And mm -hmm. so a lot of times people get really, really focused on how many buck tags we're issuing for a unit. And, uh, but that's not the cause of that declining buck to doe ratio. Recruitment's a bigger issue. Sometimes recruitment's a bigger issue. Mm. Yeah. Our, our buck to ratios, well, we, we had deer declines, especially in like Southern Utah due to drought. Mm -hmm. And we cut, we've cut a lot of permits um, over the last four or five years. Uh, but this year, I just was looking at this year's data and our buck to doe ratios are starting to bounce back on like the Pine Valley, the Panguitch Lake, some of those units that had, mm -hmm. had, had seen some pretty big dips. And we made some cuts and I think We've had better conditions. We've had like more monsoon pattern the last two summers in a row, and so and those buck with between the improving conditions, better recruitment, and uh, cuts of buck tags, we're seeing those buck to doe ratios come back a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, all, most of our general season units we manage them for between you know 15 and 20 bucks per hundred does. We kind of got a couple different categories in there, and in Utah we feel like that's kind of a sweet spot where it allows us to give quite a bit of opportunity. And that's what we're managing our general units for is for opportunity. We're trying to, you know, make it somewhere a lot of folks can get out and hunt. You said 15 to 20? Yeah, but we have 15 to 17 15 and 18 to, yeah. to 20s. Yep. Uh, and so in that range, for general, we're, we're, season. for general season, we're well within the biological sideboards where it's not having an impact on our does are getting bred or they're getting, you know, that type of thing. We're not, we're not up against any kind of like a biological threshold there but it's kind of a sweet spot for just letting a lot of people get out to hunt. And for the folks that, you know, get lucky or really know what they're doing, there's still some good bucks to be mm -hmm. had. Um, Utah has the most robust, I hear this said, most robust collar project going on of any, any of the states. What kind of data are we learning from our callers that you guys are using to then plug into your, your modeling yeah. for, for deer? So, you know, we're, we're getting... I love I love the work we're doing with callers. Um, when we have a lot of callers out there and guys like Mike that, that run a district, how many how many different collared animals do you have on the air right now? There's think, there's a uh, lot. Yeah, I think including sheep and goats, I've probably got 130 animals or something. Gotcha. But, but we, these are GPS callers. They're communicating to a satellite. We we can upload the data you know daily, multiple times a day even and see what's going on. When the collars don't move for a period of time, it'll send us a mortality alert and say, that, you know, this animal's likely dead. And then our biologists, we get those, and they typically within 24 hours, we have somebody out there seeing, why is this animal dead? Did it starve to death? Did it get hit by a truck? Did it kill, get killed by a lion? Did it get caught in a fence? Mm -hmm. And by determining cause-specific mortality, we can identify limiting factors for these deer populations and then focus management. Like we've changed the way we manage cougar hunting in Utah quite a bit. We've added a whole bunch of our cougar units into our predator management designation where essentially there's no cap. Where, you know, and because and we're realizing cougars are a limiting factor here. They're, they're, they're suppressing this deer population. They're not letting it bounce back after a bad winter or whatever you might have had. And so... Um, 
and and we're seeing, you know, or we or we see okay, the, these animals are starving to death. You know, when we go and do the necropsy, we look at the bone marrow, and if the mm-hmm. and if they've started to metabolize their own bone marrow, and it's like red pink jelly in there instead of like a you know whitish yellow fatty substance in the bone marrow they're metabolizing their own you know their own bone marrow their skin and bones they have no body fat on them we're like okay we got a nutrition issue on the on this unit what can we do to to improve you know forage that's available for these animals so yeah and we we've changed the way we manage cougars across a lot of the state and uh, we really want to be able to have that data. We're identifying migration corridors where animals are crossing roads. Mm. We're working with the Department of Transportation to put in the correct kind of fencing and over crossing structures. Uh, I, I love that when we do our population models, we're not saying, okay, well, adult doe survival was 87% on a study they did in Montana back in 1986. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, what was adult doe survival on the beaver this year? Yeah. You know, so we were able to plug in real-time data from local areas when we were trying to figure out how many deer we have there. And as we do that, I feel like our models are getting better and better. They're still a model. They're not mm-hmm. perfect, mm-hmm. but they're getting better and better. I have more confidence in our in our data, our population estimates, our survival data, than I've ever had since I've worked for the agency. That's and, cool. Yeah, I, it's, I, it's it's an awesome time to be a biologist. Yeah, we, that's awesome. We really transitioned. When I first started out in wildlife, we had the VHF callers, mm-hmm. and you go out with an antenna, and mm-hmm. you're you know maybe listening on headphones, or you're holding this receiver, <laughs> and you're trying to figure, and you get multiple yeah, locations, pain. and you take a compass bearing, and then plot it up on a map to try to figure out where that animal might be. That's and what now, I used to do with the fish in the fish side. <laughs> now <laughs> I can be in my sweatpants in my basement and pull it up yeah. on my laptop and see like a precise pinpoint location of exactly where, where in your these beans. animals have been for the last, mm-hmm. you know, however long, and it's it's awesome, and it's it's given us better data so we can make better management decisions. Is there any concern with all that data becoming, you know, more publicly available and then hunters could then turn around and use that to a way that might not be beneficial then for the wildlife? Like not maybe given pinpoint this deer is here throughout the whole like season, but like even like the corridors, migration areas where they're going to be at most of the year to like could negatively benefit the work that you guys are doing because it, it does become publicly available and people can download it, they can put it in whatever they want and use it to, you know, something that could affect the herds. You guys don't publicly put that out there, do you? Do you do, do people have to do a grammar request or? And we, we sensitive, sensitive information, like, in, like information about like, you know, well, this is where the bucks go or something. Yeah. We don't, we don't release that out as public information, but if we're identifying like a migration corridor, you know, that is sure. something that perhaps hunters could use to their advantage. But I don't know if we're releasing it at a scale to where it's going to, you know, really impact something. Really, really be like, okay, well, now they're going to just line up in these two spots. And if they shoot every buck that walks through, they wipe out every <laughs> buck. It's not yeah. quite to that scale. But, but uh, I do think it's something that could, it could, could give you some ideas. You know, if you, rather than going into a unit completely blind, if you look at some of the GIS habitat layers and a lot of the, a lot of like the mapping programs and stuff will incorporate that and yeah. give you ideas of, you know, what's deer summer range, what's deer winter range and yeah, migration. That's, where, and, and that's that, kind of where my thought goes yeah. sometimes is with like the winter range side too. Like, yeah. so you get more winter range data, yeah. you get more people out there camping on bucks, camping on bulls, yeah. pressuring things. When Some the damn shit so hunters. But I, yeah, but I, but I mean, I look at it. If I, if I go hunt a third season deer hunt in Colorado, I'm looking where, where's the, you know, okay, what's our weather conditions this year? What's our winter range on this exactly. year? Right, that's yep. where I'm going to start looking yep. to find so, bucks in November. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so it's a little more broad. It's a, I see a little bit more okay with it, but it starts getting narrowed down to specific animals or specific herds yeah. in that specific unit. Then it's kind of fuzzy we, we, to me. We try to only share that data at a scale where, 
hopefully it's not going to cross that line and, and mm-hmm. to, towards, yeah. I just think it's great that you've, we're finally getting on the ground data that's specific to our deer herds, our units. You know, you're taking that data and then you're plugging it back into the models. So we're not working on data that was done, like you said, from a study that was done in Colorado in the 50s or the 60s. Well, I, I think it's really cool. It's like a local biologist. It gives you more confidence uh, in making yeah. changes. Right? Yeah, make, yeah. Sometimes when you're not super confident, the easy answer is same as last year, right? Like it's, yeah. It's easier to do the same rather than make a change that you think needs to happen if you don't have the data to back it up. But like with what we have, we're to a point where we feel pretty confident in the recommendations we make. And that that yeah. allow like personally... You know, on like on the Pavant, we made a huge cut, and then we've been trying to increase tags back up. And I think without the data that we've had, I don't know that we would have been as aggressive on those yeah. cuts and those increases. It, it felt like for so long, a lot of our management was reactive. Like we would, you know, we would we were reacting to a certain set of conditions or harvests or whatever it was, and it just feels like this is giving us the ability to be more proactive with with our management. Like which which I think is great. I think it's awesome. The the last few years with our when we make our deer permit recommendations, we, we kind of, I, I worked with our, our old uh, previous big game uh, program coordinator. We kind of built our own little program where we would plug in survival and harvest and then look at fawn to doe ratios and fawn survival and project based on, you know, what, what are we likely to end up, what will our buck to doe ratio, postseason buck to doe ratio be next year based on these factors? Mm-hmm. And then the variable was, was uh, permit numbers. And uh, we'd have to kind of, we'd just use like long-term average success. Well, on some units that varies more than others, but you know, and and we're really honing in that model too, to where we can predict pretty pretty closely what our postseason buck to doe ratio will be the next year, you know, based on how many permits we recommend. And so that's, you know, Mike speaking to that, on some units we've made some pretty aggressive cuts mm-hmm. because we knew that's what we needed to do to come in where we wanted to be after the hunts the following year. And, uh, and and in some cases, we'll recommend an aggressive increase if we realize, okay, we're going to have we're going to yeah. have surplus bucks, so let's harvest them. Yeah. And uh, it it's nice. It's and it's not perfect. And 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 the division's not perfect. We we you know come on now. We get we get a lot of criticism. <laughs> yeah. We get a lot of criticism, and some of it's fair. You know, but but our guys are trying. They're trying to use the best data they can. It doesn't mean we don't ever get anything wrong, or that we don't sometimes do something that violates your personal opinions or preferences. Mm-hmm. But but we have really good biologists right now, guys like Mike and gals across the state that really care and are super invested and they're not working for the DWR because they want to be able to, you know, buy a timeshare in Cabo or something. They're working for the DWR because they love deer, they love elk and, <laughs> yeah. and they're trying. It's a labor of love, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Are, are the uh, Anderlis doe hunts? Are they a positive thing that you guys use for management or how do those get determined? Like do those ever increase, decrease? How do you use that for the overall, you know, herd health in, in Utah? Yeah, so most of our, I've talked about elk, most of our elk populations, we give a lot of antlerless elk tags. We're harvesting a lot of cows because we're managing our population um, at, a, at a social carrying capacity mm-hmm. rather than a biological one. If you look across the state, we give a very small number of doe deer permits, and most of our deer populations are at a functional biological carrying capacity. Um, When we do have doe hunts, typically, if you look at our doe hunts, most of them are not like a unit-wide doe hunt or something. They're they're targeted to specific areas Mm -hmm. where we've got like conflicts with agriculture or something. Or, uh, yeah, so we don't do a lot of doe hunting in Utah. Um, and we've talked about it. We could maybe harvest a few more does and do it in a way that's not additive mortality. It wouldn't necessarily reduce population because some of those does die every year yep. regardless. 
but there hasn't been, I don't think we felt super strongly about it and there hasn't been much social appetite. Most okay. sportsmen don't want to, they want more deer and killing does yeah. is how you, you know, oh, yeah. move a population down. So we don't do a lot of doe hunting. Some states do more doe hunting. Colorado and that's, has, that's why I kind of brought yeah. it up because there's a lot of other states that I'm and, not going to throw into the bus, but like I, and there's some biological there's, arguments for it that you can harvest some does and some of the does you harvest are going to be, you know, your older, less productive animals and you maintain, you know, maybe a younger or more productive age structure. There are some arguments for having some doe hunts, and we, we go back and forth and talk about it a little bit in Utah, but I, I don't know that we're to the point where we're looking to recommend, you know, mm-hmm. big increases in doe, doe hunts, doe deer hunts, just yeah. in specific areas where we've got conflicts or a need. If we see, occasionally sometimes we'll see like a winter range that's completely hammered or something, and we might have a doe hunter or two there to try to give that range a break to come back, but we don't do a lot of that in Utah. How about the concerns of CWD? What are you guys' thoughts? So CWD is terrifying. I don't even want to talk about it. it How it, terrified it, are you? I, I, do you think about it a lot? A lot, yeah. And Like, uh, is it, I mean... I try not to think about it because it's is pretty it, bleak. It's it, is it on the uptick to a point where... It just seems like to me, and this is me just looking at it, it seems to have been somewhat stagnant for the last 10 years. I, I mean, we've been yeah. talking about CWD since I was in college. Yeah you know, 15, 20 years at this point, and I'm not, either I'm just not paying attention and I'm just not seeing massive impacts. So, so yeah. you know, so, so, am, am I wrong? So in Utah, I think you're, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. And, and some, of the, some of the latest science on it, some of the latest data, if you look at parts of like uh, north central uh, Colorado or south central Wyoming, they've seen CBD prevalence really shoot up to the point where it's starting to affect, you know, population mm-hmm. numbers in, in deer. And in both of those states, they manage for a much higher postseason buck to doe ratio than we do in Utah. You know, like the average postseason buck to doe ratio in Utah is probably right around 20 bucks per hundred does. In, in Colorado and Wyoming, it's probably in the 30 to 40 range. Mm-hmm. And some of the data suggests that because we've managed generally for a lower buck to doe ratio in Utah, we've kept CWD. We've kept out. CWD. Our prevalence mm-hmm. is pretty low. That's interesting. Yeah. Really. And. Uh, and, and CWD is a tough one. From a hunter's perspective, like I hear sportsmen say to me, like the cure is worse than the disease. Yeah. That's like what say, if yeah, we yeah. have CWD, it's going to kill all our deer, so let's get ahead of it and go kill all kill our deer. And I get where they're I coming like from. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I can get behind that one. <laughs> I understand where they're coming from. The apocalypse um, is coming. Yeah. Let's and, just cut a wide swath. <laughs> more you got them, so, so part of my like fear with, and frustration with CWD is, I don't know if we have a really great answer to what we do with it. I don't want to get to the point where they are in some parts of Colorado and Wyoming where they are, where they have super high prevalence and they're starting to see, you know, population level impacts from CWD. I do not want to get there, but I also don't want to get there artificially by killing all of our bucks so that we don't have. So we're working out, we have a veterinarian that's, that's sharp and she's on it and watching it. And, uh, and I've been looking at just, recently been looking at some of the media that Colorado just put out trying to educate folks and landowners and that's one of the challenges they have is um, private landowners typically want to manage for you know higher buck to the ratios on private land than you're going to see on public land and so then you end up with reservoirs potentially of CWD positive bucks which are most likely to have and most likely to spread the disease mm. I wish I had great answers and we had like a clear strategy for how we get ahead of CWD and uh Maybe, you're Maybe that's why it. I'm so afraid of it because I don't I don't know if I have the answers. Yeah, mm. and, and I don't want to lose deer. 
Like yeah. we, deer already have enough thrown yeah. at them. I do not want to throw one more thing at mule deer. I love deer. I'm a deer guy. Yeah. It seems like I spend all my time working on elk, but deer, deer is what I love. It's just like Brady. He kill, spends all of his time killing elk, but he yeah. supposedly loves deer. He thinks about deer all the time. <laughs> yeah, deer, like, why are deer taking it in the shorts so bad compared to everything else? What is it? Like, if you look at the national population of mule deer, I mean, I'm, I say national, but they're obviously only in the West. I am that smart at least to know that. Um, like, what? why are they getting killed so bad? Deer... deer they're, you know, te- elk, elk they're temperamental, ge- <laughs> just like Brady. Sensitive. Elk are generalists. Elk are generalists. They're opportunists. Elk are tough. Elk, yeah. you know, if they normally migrate to an area and we build a city in that area, they migrate somewhere else. You know, if all the grass is covered up, the elk eat shrubs. You See, know, Brady? Elk. Elk. Elk, <laughs> elk do. Oh. Elk, elk figure it out. You know, yeah. elk don't starve to death in the winter hardly ever. That's it's quite rare to have like a big like a large scale die off of elk elk are kind of the they're the slow and steady species their reproductive rates aren't as high as deer but their survival rates are a lot higher you know we've got cow elk that are 20 plus years old that are they're maybe not having a calf every year but they're still having calves some of the time you know and uh, elk just kind of chug along slow and steady they can deal with changing migration patterns changing movements they're more they're more resilient to predators. They have they can eat a way bigger variety of diets, and mule deer are special and amazing and deserve protection. Just because they're harder, to ma- <laughs> just because they're harder than elk doesn't mean they're not less important. Yeah, you know. Or, uh, and, uh, but deer are way more specific with their diet, with their dietary requirements and what they eat. Their digestive system is more specialized. They they seem to be more true to like historical migration patterns and movements. They don't deal with disturbance and change to some of those things as well as elk. Um, so it's human expansion. And it's a combination of things. Fire suppression is probably a big one. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of our, our – because deer do – they do so much better when they have, like, a lot of high forb content or, like, younger uh, uh, age of plants on the landscape, you know, having periodic fires and stuff is going to benefit deer more with weeds and things that make sh- turn our landscapes, especially winter ranges, just to like cheatgrass dominated landscapes, that's gonna benefit elk, probably at the detriment of deer a lot of the time. And uh, deer are more susceptible to predators. I don't know what else, Mike, but. I was just gonna say, you know, we could have more elk because we could just get rid of some more deer. <laughs> that's, that's how I think. <laughs> I mean, elk are hardy. Let's just let's just go yeah. all in on elk. Yeah. And, and deer, <laughs> like I said, elk are more kind of slow and steady, where deer are more boom and bust. You know, they're going to have twins or even triplets maybe, and and can really grow quick. And uh, you know, they can bounce back quick. But they can die. You know, they'll die quicker, but they can bounce back quicker. And where elk are just kind of chug, chug. Do you chug think along. there is a correlation, like Brady asked? I mean, I, we've, I remember talking about this when we were in college. Yeah. Like, do you think there's a correlation between um, competition and, you know, re- reduction in deer herds due to elk expansion? It, I, I think there can be on units yeah. where, like, resource is limited. You know, if you have, mm-hmm. like, the Oak Creek, for example, right? It's very little summer range. The winter range is burned a lot, and a lot of it's converted to cheatgrass. A unit like the Oak Creek, if we were to try and manage for 2,000 elk on there, I think you'd see problems with the deer population. But units where there's enough resources for them both, I don't think it's an issue. Yeah, it's probably that it depends answer. Depends. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there are play, elk are they're big, they're smelly, they're loud. 
you know, if there if if there's if there's a limited amount of a crucial resource, you know, whether it's that's in the summer or in the winter, elk are going to win. You know, they're going to displace deer. But that's really hard to prove. We did a big study on the Bookcliffs unit that has a really limited amount of summer range. And uh, I was the biologist out there, and I was like, oh, this is going to show that these elk are, are messing up my Hurt deer. Hurts. That's what you wanted to happen, <laughs> didn't you? And, uh, you went into that preloaded. To I, that, was, that, was <laughs> yeah. that was my, that was my, pre, yeah. <laughs> my predetermined bias outcome that I wanted, and that's not what the study showed us. The study showed us that, that elk weren't displacing deer or moving them. And, hmm. and we've seen on that poor unit, the poor book cliffs, like near and dear to my heart, and it is struggling. And it's not just the deer that are struggling. The elk are struggling out there, too. It's that bad in the book cliff. So I, I think there's times where it probably does, and there's times where even if you're a biased deer guy and you think it is, maybe it's not doing as much as you as you think. Too. Is it mostly drought on the book cliffs? Yeah. Yeah. Just really limited amount of summer range yeah. and, and just prolonged drought. That's It's just kind of just nailed everything out there. It. Too many mouths, not enough feed. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've, we've had you guys for a couple hours almost. Do you guys have other questions? We have a lot of them. I got one more. I would be interested in your guys' take in hunter recruitment and hunter retention, kind of three R's. Um, you mentioned earlier that you're seeing about a 7% increase applicants year over year. Um, I'd be interested in your take. Is it a good thing? Good thing for wildlife? Good thing for the state? Um, and is, is it just a, a something that we've got to work with to you know figure out that increase to like help more people but like what's your take on that yeah so as, as a hunter sometimes i'm like man i wish fewer people would hunt because it feels like increasing competition for a limited resource but it's a double-edged sword though too because if we don't have widespread public support you look at some of the things that are happening in some other states when you lose like oregon you know, yeah yeah you, you look at what, when you lose that broad-based public support for hunting or consumptive use of wildlife it's terrifying you know the ability to manage predators usually goes first and then it just escalates from there so we've got to keep our public involved and engaged we've got to recruit new folks we can't have everyone who hunts be a 50 plus year old man you know we need new people in in the sport so we can stay relevant and so we can continue to have public support in utah we have a constitutional right to hunt and fish and That's so right. we, and we have we have some protections against uh ballot initiatives in, in state code in utah which is i think a good thing i agree but i also think um as our demographics change and our state changes we've got to keep reaching out and bringing more people into the tent and sometimes that means more competition for a tag you really want to draw. But I think big picture, long term, we've got to keep people coming into hunting so we can maintain support and, and, and relevancy and, uh, and that sometimes. But as a, just coming from a selfish standpoint as a sportsman, sometimes I'm like, we should delete all of our social media and never yeah. put out another press release and change the dates for the application deadline and never tell anyone. And then maybe I'll draw. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But but. Long-term, big picture, I don't think that's what's good for us. I don't want us to lose public support. Yeah. So that, that's my, that's my yeah. two cents on it. Yeah, when you say public support, I think it brings us – it's not just – it's not public support in the fact that, like, everybody has to hunt, but it's all, I also think that there's, there's got to be enough hunters because ultimately, like, rules and regulations, there's never going to be as many hunters as there are non-hunters. I yeah. mean, it's just the way yeah. things are right now. But I think the number of hunters and their ability to – you know, impact the people around them that don't hunt. Yes, you know, exactly. to, to maintain that 
I mean, it's like Colorado, right? We went with we went with wolves in Colorado, and it was a close vote, right? Yeah. Like that was mostly swayed by you know Denver and and your metropolitan areas, but I mean, a lot of people don't hunt, and they're kind of on the fence about hunting. I, I think there needs to be more people that hunt just to put that you know put the good vibes out there. Yeah, I agree. Like, you know, yeah, I'm I'm passionate about about that. It is a double edged sword, and I'm a sportsman chasing tags just like everybody else and trying to apply in as many states as possible. And yeah, like the very beginning of this conversation, you want it all, you want the best, and you want to be the only one that has it, right? It's like <laughs> everybody wants the best product on planet Earth for a penny. Like it's just the way life is, right? It, it's it's a double-edged sword. But if like I have a son, he's four years old, turning four years old in, in March, um, like my my it's about him now like my motivation is so he can experience in his life what what hunting has done for me i want it to do to him as well right and there's only one way to have that education protection understanding right like getting the population to understand it because like you said the first thing to go is predator control well that's a that's a big thing to go i mean you look yeah. at california oregon like that's a big thing to go it massively impacts the yeah. opportunity of hunting overall so more hunters, specifically non-resident hunters, spending their money in their neighboring states, right? Help thy, na- help thy neighbor. Like it's a, that is the part of hunting. Like we, we need more understanding, more compassion for it, you know, more support of it. So we, you guys can do your jobs better. Like, so you don't have to deal with what so Oregon and Colorado. Bonus. Yeah. Christmas <laughs> you know what I mean? About. Like it, it, it's a hard conversation to have because you can't have it. it. It's not a two minute conversation. It's a double edged sword. You have to talk about both sides of it. But what are you willing to give up for the benefit of what you're trying to protect? Right. Yeah. It's like I am. I will fight tooth and nail to protect it for my son and his son. Right. If he's lucky enough to have one. But that comes at the expense of me having to compete over tags. I'm willing to do that, you know, for the sake of him. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting. I wanted to I wanted to dig into that. I just wanted to hear your your perspective as somebody that works for the state and and kind of what you guys think as far as the the growth and popularity in, in Western big game hunting. Yeah, as I as I work for the state and start to look at things at a broader and broader perspective, I think it's changed my opinion on that a little bit to where I realize, like you said, not everyone necessarily needs to put in for tags and go out and hunt. Yeah, but I I want everyone to be not too far removed from someone who does. Yep. And I want all the, the hunters and sportsmen out there to be, you know, good ambassadors for what we do and for wildlife management and for hunting as an important wildlife management tool. And educate and, those people yeah. on what and, it is that we do. Yeah. Like, and in platforms like this, like, like you guys' podcast, yeah. you know, I hope that folks listen to this that maybe aren't, you know, super into hunting deer or elk or something. And maybe they listen to this and realize like, okay, you know, this can be done yeah. sustainably, responsibly. It's important to people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, I want it to stay something that's socially acceptable and, and supported. Yeah. It's like I got you guys are lucky to be in Utah, though, with that. Yeah. Utah's got – you guys You guys have something special. Sorry to cut you off, but, like, you guys have something special about – you guys are hunters yourselves and a lot of your – you know, a lot of the biologists in DWR. You guys have such a culture of hunting within the state where you go to – you hunt somewhere like Colorado, and the fish and game agent that's checking you is, like, a lot of the times an anti-hunter. So you're already the devil to them before they even come and try to police what you're doing, right? It's like they, they have a motivation there that's just, first of all, yeah. not understanding, and it's different yeah, I will motivation say in Utah, than yours. I mean, in Utah, when I worked for the state, I mean, I would say most of the people that I knew hunted, all, almost all of them, and a lot of them got into it because they liked to hunt, yeah. hunt and fish. Yeah. 
so a, a true protection yeah, of true. what we have and yeah. what we do. Yeah. You know, like I don't know. Do you guys deal with a lot of other state fishing game agencies? Occasionally, yeah, we have meetings and coordinate on issues and stuff. And but they're all they're all a little different. I feel like we have a lot of we've got a lot of folks in the western states though that are pretty avid and like to get out and hunt. But it changes a lot. I think one of the things that really makes a big difference too is the makeup of your your wildlife board or your commission. For sure. In the in some of those states, I think that can make a really big difference too, and kind of what the overall attitude is towards stuff. We, and we have an awesome wildlife board in Utah. I mean, we might not always agree about trail cameras or something, but they love hunting. Yeah. They're supportive of hunting. And, uh, and, and I, I feel really grateful for that. We do have good, we've got good folks that work within our agency that they came to work here because they cared about it. They're passionate about it. Uh, I would say a huge percentage, very high percentage of our folks hunt, hunt or fish. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we have good support from, from our wildlife board as well. Good deal. Um, do you guys, off the top of your head, do you know your draw deadline? Do you do you know that? Either mm, of you? I don't. If you don't, we'll drop it in the go podcast. To, go to gohunt.com yeah. and you can find out yeah. what yeah, our we'll, draw we'll, deadline is. We'll, we'll drop it in the podcast. Because if you ask the guys in charge of it, yeah, they we'll can't remember it. right now. <laughs> I'm used to the way, you know, it used to be a little bit earlier in the year. But we'll yeah. we'll drop that in the podcast. But Utah's draw deadline is coming up. So, you know, applying Utah, I've always said, you know, Utah's a great state to apply. And you know what's interesting is I was talking to a guy the other day. It's actually one of the more economical states to apply in yeah. at this point, even though you have to buy the hunting license. That hunting license is cheaper than a lot of states like Arizona or Nevada or well, who else? I'm trying to think even Colorado's is more expensive for a non-resident. So, or Idaho, which, wow, 185 bucks. They're really sticking it to you just on that license. But, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, Utah is one of the more economical options to apply. I, I still think... I tell people all the time, general season deer hunting, like if you're a non-resident, that can still be a hunt that you could plan on doing every three to five, six years. It's still a fantastic hunt. And it sounds like we're still growing some deer. Um, you know, we've had a good winter in a lot of the states. So I would anticipate seeing, you know, potentially good, some good bucks this year. Um, and then as long as you're doing it, you might as well throw your name in the ring for any and all species that you're interested in. Cause like you said, there is those random opportunities to draw a permit. So Apply in Utah. Um, April 27th. April 27th. There you go. 27th. Um, Glad you guys are here to help us. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I had so to pull it up on Go Hunt, my little article I read every year. Hit, with, hit us with the promo code and we'll wrap this out, Brady. All right. So, yeah, we got to treat you guys right with the promo code. So, you want to sign up for Go Hunt Insider. That's all of our research tools, application strategies, draw odds, filtering 2.0. Use promo code podcast. I'll get you 50 bucks to the Go Hunt Gear Shop. And it's time to do research. So like I said, you got draw odds, filtering 2.0, hunt planner, point tracker, all these different tools that'll help you right now. Like we're talking about the state of Utah. So dive in, start planning your Utah strategy and get some tags in your pocket and we want to help you out. So use that code, sign it up, and have your best season ever. And hunt Utah. Utah's an awesome state. Brady's getting good at that. He is good. He's got, he's he's got really it tied. I, 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 I can fire it up. Fresh in the beginning. That was, he's going to quit good. here and go to a local <laughs> radio station. He really he's trying to do. Yeah. Got a face for radio. He's going to read yeah. ad, be an ad reader. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks, guys. We appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.